All right. I'm going to use my sweet Rube Goldberg Dropbox upload right now. <laughs> get, get ready. All right. Don't forget to check your little LED before you go to sleep. I will, because it's, it's going to shine right in my face if I <laughs> But your next innovation is going to be a black piece of tape to cover the LED that's shining in your face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'd like to file a complaint to the two of you, and you did not know this was coming. Right now, as we speak, there is something that Marco and I should be watching on YouTube right now. Right now, there's a replay of a jam band's concert from last year. Want to guess which one, Marco? Well, I don't know. Fish did theirs last night, and I recorded it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm pretty sure it's not Fish, so it's not, it must not be a jam band. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Dave Matthews Band, had, last week, this week, and I think for the next several Wednesdays, are replaying concert videos on YouTube, uh, and they're broadcasting them live. Uh, last week, I recorded it live using YouTube DL, and then realized the next morning I didn't have to bother with that. I could just download it after the fact um you know because sometimes on youtube i think you can make things live and then they don't get yeah saved so to speak I don't, i'm sure there's better terminology for this um and in the case of the dave matthews one it was perfectly up and available the next morning um but yeah i, I think i might have to skip the show from now on because i've got more important things to do yeah it's, it's a good thing that you know we would never possibly you know download an hls stream and be able to preserve it forever in our plex libraries no. <laughs> uh, so we definitely have <laughs> to watch not. these things live yeah, uh, as not. as your jam band does what my jam band's been doing for quite some time. Uh, you know that's just mean. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong, but it's just plain mean, man. Marco's going to add it to his definition of a jam band. Does not allow downloading of high quality yeah. <laughs> equals not a jam band. It really, you know, I do think I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but here we go. Uh, I do think not irregularly about the epiphany um that Either you or I, it might have been me, had several months ago when I realized that my definition of jam band and your definition of jam band are very, very different. And to recap, uh, I think it's fair to say, and correct me, but your definition of jam band is kind of the style of music um, and less about whether or not it's improvised. And to me, I don't really care what style of music it is. It's just whether or not it's improvisation. And, and we can get into another argument for the 95th time over who is right. It ultimately doesn't matter. But uh, it, it really made me feel better. Yeah, mine. Yours is more. Yours is a more literal interpretation of like a jam band is like a band that jams. It's almost right. like mm-hmm. like if like if your definition of country western music could not be made in New York City. Like if by definition, right. if somebody, <laughs> if a country singer came to New York City and made music here, it would not be country western music. Like that's that's right. kind of like your definition in jam band is like a band that jams. Like it's very literal. And I, and I think many people share that definition, but you know, from the point of view of like, if you are a like, say, a Sirius XM jam band station that totally exists, that's a genre of music that you play. It's not. Which Dave Matthews is on, if I'm not mistaken. I think I, I don't know. I haven't had Sirius in a long time, but <laughs> they, they might be. The point is, like, a jam band is not any band that jams. It is a musical genre that happens to include a lot of jamming, but that doesn't necessarily mean that any band that jams has suddenly become a jam band. Yeah, and I mean, again, we've we've been around the block a few times on this issue but i it would it would it would genuinely annoy me to no end when you would just fluff off oh dave matthews isn't a jam band dave matthews band, this is not a jam band and and i feel like my world has been righted by realizing that we're just having two different arguments <laughs> at totally. the same time like so many arguments in modern culture <laughs> indeed. Like, we're, indeed we're, we're never going to come to a resolution because we're totally arguing different things <laughs> 
I mean, at least we're not moving the goalposts like John always does. Am I right? So Ooh. let's start with follow-up. <laughs> you, you, what you were talking about was exactly that. You have two different sets of goalposts, and that's why you couldn't, you couldn't figure out where the disagreement was. And here I am quietly not liking either band. So <laughs> who's doing it right here? Yeah, I guess I guess you win again. All right, let's start with some follow-up. Uh, first and uh, clearly most importantly to everyone involved with the show, uh, my garage door project monitor, my garage door monitor project is complete. So, Casey, is your garage door open or closed right now? Well, I would have to look at the app right now because I'm in the other room. I'm in, I'm in the office and not the bedroom. But, uh, but <laughs> does, does your window have line of sight on your garage door? Could you, could you peek? No, it does not. Uh, I don't know if you set me up for that on purpose or not, Marco, I but either way, it was well done. Wait, wait, wait. I've got it. Can you have a, a, a camera that looks at the light? Yeah, that's what I should do. There that's we the, go. That's the right answer. Yeah. I can get the new Raspberry Pi camera that's like 50 bucks mm-hmm. or something there like that. It's super high res and it's totally overkill for what <laughs> I would need this for. And, and all it has is a view of this tiny LED on your nightstand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. That's hilarious. But anyways, uh, the, the project is complete. Uh, don't ask me to show you what uh, most of the components look like because there's not any real good mounting set up for any of this stuff. But uh, it does work. It is complete. There's an LED that is uh, in my bedroom that is illuminated when the garage door is open and it is extinguished when the garage door is closed. And I am very excited about this. And uh, for, for phase one, it is complete. Phase two, which I haven't started yet, is, and I think we discussed this last time, is to get a relay, well, I have a relay, but to get that relay working such that I can hypothetically raise and lower the door uh, via the Raspberry Pi, as well as just monitor whether or not it's open or closed. Uh, but I think most important of all, we need to um, we need to all celebrate the fact that I was right and John was wrong. And my read switch, my window, it's not necessarily specifically designed for a window, but my my close proximity only read switch that John had had thought would never possibly work did indeed work. Did you mention goalpost moving earlier? Because it sounds to me like, a, like what you're describing is not what happened. At this point, Marco can add the diddaloo music and play back what I said, which I believe was something like, I think you might have too much confidence in your switch. Not that it would never work, which is what you just said. So, so much for correctly identifying the goalpost movers. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it worked out for you. I was pessimistic. I Thanks, expressed Dad. doubt. But it looks like it worked out well. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm excited about that. And uh, you can see in my Insta stories, um, you can see that I was soldering today, which I'm still just hilariously bad at. But nevertheless, I am I am good enough to make a successful solder, even though it is hideous to look at. And, uh, yeah, so it's all working. And I'm really excited about that. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to do any more work on this before next week's show. But hopefully at some point I'll be able to start toying with that relay and see if I can uh, see if I can get that working. So, I uh, I will take my victory lap right now. Moving on, I was looking through the mentions for the ATP Twitter account, which I try to keep up with and I do a terrible job of. And somebody wrote something that at a glance, I almost skipped over it because I was like, I don't care about this. And then I went back and was wait, 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 wait. So Derek Van Ittersom wrote, you can use Synology's Cloud Sync to take a folder on the Synology and sync that with your Dropbox files. Yeah, I knew that. Okay, whatever. That folder can also be synced with Synology Drive. What? Thus, Dropbox can sync uh, Dropbox synced files on all devices with no Dropbox app installed anywhere. Hold on a second. Tell me more. So it took me a minute to parse what Derek was saying, but then I realized he was basically solving my problem for me, and I feel so dumb for not having thought of this already. So 
There's an app on the Synology. So this is a you know Synology package that runs on the Synology called CloudSync. And I'd been running it for a long time to get a local backup of my Dropbox. And it would just act as a Dropbox client. And it would sync all of my files you know, from Dropbox down to the Synology. And again, I just used it as a one-way like replicator. That's not the only way you can use it, but that's just how I was using it. Meanwhile, and off to the side, there's also Synology Drive, which Although it has the same problem as Apple TV, where there's one phrase that means like 95 different things, one of the things Synology Drive means is they're like pseudo Dropbox-like thing, where the Synology is the one source of truth for all of your data, and all of your other devices can can hook up to that Synology, and it acts basically like Dropbox. You know, it has a client app, everything stays in sync, et cetera, et cetera. But it had never occurred to me to bring the two together. So what Derek is saying is, I could and have... I could take the Synology Cloud Sync server-side stuff and have it save and replicate my Dropbox into my Synology Drive root folder. Am I making any sense, gentlemen? Are you with me? Totally, yeah. It, okay. It sounds like a, a very casey solution to a problem because it's, yeah. <laughs> it's overly complicated, it solves a problem that doesn't need to be solved that badly, and it involves a Synology. And it adds potential additional problems. Remember, we talked about this uh, way back when of like, you know, in general, putting a sync folder inside a sync folder inside a sync folder, like, it doesn't lead to happiness. Most services won't allow you to do it. Like, Dropbox won't let you put like Microsoft OneDrive inside it or vice versa. Like, they have, they have things to try to stop you from doing it. But Synology is uh, more laissez faire and you can do it. But I would really, I mean, maybe two layers deep, maybe that'll be mostly okay, but I wouldn't go three or four layers deep. It's a little bit uh, sketchy, and of course, yeah, I, I, I don't. You do have to have something that syncs with Dropbox. So presumably, is that Dropbox software, or is that something using some kind of public Dropbox API? Do you know the the origin of the Synology Dropbox app? You know, I don't. Uh, I would assume they're just using public Dropbox APIs, but I, I certainly do not know that for fast. <laughs> they're scraping HTML from the web. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it very well could be. You don't want to know how it works. It works. It's fine. Just close your eyes. Well, and to that end, I did do this earlier today when I saw this tweet and was like, wait, what? Oh, and so I tried it. And at a glance in you know the last hour or two since I've tried it, it seems to be working just fine. And, you know, famous last words, knock on wood, etc. And so just for a test, and I don't know if either of you guys happen to be sitting at your computers when I did this, I put a different audio file into our shared Dropbox folder um, where we share our you know, recordings from these episodes. And I did that using the Dropbox web app. And sure enough, you know, maybe 15, 30 seconds after it had uploaded using the web app, it ended back up on the same computer where from where it started, uh, but inside, you know, my Synology Drive Dropbox folder. And then I deleted it locally using Finder, and almost instantaneously, it was removed from the Dropbox web app. So at a glance, this is working. And as someone who doesn't really use Dropbox anymore, except to share files with you guys and with Mike and a couple of other random scenarios here and there... I'm actually really, really excited and pleased with this because I don't think I'm going to be stressing it very much. And it seems to basically offload all the ickiness of Dropbox onto the Synology, which for me, for now, seems good. So if you're in this weird scenario where you have cloud, you have a Synology, you're using Synology Drive, you too, all 12 of us, dozens of us maybe, uh, we, we can benefit from this weird but awesome setup. The one thing I would watch for is for like a, when you're nesting uh, multiple servers like this is situations with very large files that actually take an appreciable amount of time to transfer. That may not be much of an issue because you have such a fast internet connection and so on and so forth. But like 
uh, when it's just one service, it can sort of say, I'm not going to make the file look like it's done until I know that it's done. But when you've got two services, the outermost service may think, oh, a new file has appeared. And as far as it can tell, it's all set to go. So let me make it appear on Casey's Mac. But really, Dropbox is still syncing it in. And I, you know, anyway, this is the, that's potential dangers of of nesting services inside each other. But if you're just very careful and do things very slowly and are very kind to the software and you're just copying one file and you wait a long time and don't yank it out from under it, it'll probably be fine. We'll see. I mean, when Marco when Marco starts sending me angry text messages wondering where my file is. Yeah, truncated audio files. Yeah. And I would say, like, don't put your Git repo in there or anything. No, 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 no <laughs> certainly not. I mean, how really, like, how is this incredibly convoluted pile of hacks better than just using iCloud Drive? Oh, I'm all in on iCloud Drive. I'm ready. Uh, because we're hoping that uh, the, the files won't just disappear one day or just fail to sync for some inexplicable reason. That's the. I think in this scenario, you'd get an error if something failed to sync, and the chances of files just disappearing are lower. Yeah, I don't know. Like The more I've thought about this problem, the more I've thought, let's just try iCloud Drive and just see how it goes. Yes, I'm ready. You know, I don't like having to run these persistent daemon services on my computers all the time unless really necessary and unless they're really providing a strong benefit. No matter what we do, iCloud is already running. iCloud Drive is already there, already syncing. It's already on, on every device that we use. It's already running anyway, no matter what we do. So it's like we're already paying the price for the usage of iCloud Drive here. We might as well use it, and then I can get rid of all this other crap software. But there's more price. The price of, hey, it didn't sync my file. When it's just running and it's not working correctly, but we're not using it, we don't pay that price. So yes, you're right that we have the overhead of, of it doing something. But if we never actually use it to do anything, we don't, you know, we're not asking it to actually run. And also we don't, aren't exposed to the bugs. I'm still in favor of SFTP. That is still my favorable solution oh, to this. you are such we, an old nerd. Because we all have SFTP clients and they don't run all the time. And, you know, if you really want something that's mounted, it's really easy to mount an SFTP driver, whatever. Well, for the record, Marco, I am all in on iCloud Drive, or at least giving it a shot, if nothing else. So you tell me when you're ready. Well, why don't you just use iCloud Drive and then have that sync to your Synology and then have oh, that sync to an SFTP server. <laughs> perfect. Nothing could go wrong. All right, John, tell me about RSI and voice control, if you please. Uh, this is, we had further uh, discussion on RSI on the last episode's Ask ATP. We've talked about it in many episodes in the past. Um, and we got a couple of interesting examples of solutions to RSI. Uh, one is from, oh, I got to do these names. I got to practice. I thought you were going to read them. Uh, <laughs> I, I know Miyagawa. I just did not used to uh, pronouncing his first name. And I think I got his last name right. Anyway, Tatsuhiko Miyagawa uh, has a, a example of someone using voice control to program in Perl, which, haha, yes, we all know. It's got all those funny punctuation symbols and everything like that. Uh, the programmer is Emily Shea, and there's a video of her uh, at a conference explaining, uh, here's how I use voice control to be a programmer, which you would think, A, is going to be hard no matter what, because programming in general is filled with all sorts of symbols and things you have to do that aren't natural. And B, Perl, oh my goodness. And of course, there's a, you know, a couple of humorous videos out there on the web of showing how terribly unmodified voice control software deals with Perl in particular. I think she uses one of them in the presentation. I don't know if this is the original funny, you know, haha, trying to do voice control for Perl, but it is one of them. Um, so I recommend everybody check that out if you want to see what's possible. It sounds funny. 
It sounds a little bit humorous when you watch it, but you can't help but be impressed. It's kind of like a Casey setup, only with an actual purpose, right? So the purpose is, <laughs> the purpose is, hey, this is a health issue. I need to find a way to do my job without using my body the way I was using it. So let me let me use my skill as a programmer to fashion something from bits and pieces, not a Raspberry Pi, but but the software equivalent, essentially, to make a setup where I can effectively program Perl and use my computer. And then the second one is Philip Brokham, who has a uh, video showing his hands-free uh, technique of using his computer. So not just like, hey, I'm not typing when I'm programming, but like entirely hands-free, as in I'm not using a mouse or a trackpad, I'm not touching the keyboard, uh, you know, and you, you might think, how can you use a computer like that? Sure, you can use voice for the text input, but what about everything else? Well, the answer is in this video. He says he's been a developer for 15 years, 10 of which have been hands-free. Um, you should definitely check it out. Um, and, he, and he sent this because he just wanted people to know that the idea of don't use your hands, like the humorous advice that I, you know, said that a doctor might offer you if you're having some problem, uh, is actually possible if you're willing to put in the effort. Um, one of the examples I was super impressed with is, like it shows the you know it, the strengths of, of voice input we all kind of know. Most people can speak uh, better than they can type. Uh, doesn't mean they can speak faster than they can type, but most people, uh, if it's just like an English sentence or you know prose sentence, they can rattle that off pretty well. And the the voice input software, if it's good, will make sure there's a single space between every word. Every word is spelled correctly, like all that stuff. And you you won't have typos. You might have speakos where you know. <laughs> homonyms and, and uh, end up in the in the sentence or whatever but uh you can you know most people can rattle off a sentence faster than they can type so add to that reasonably efficient use of the rest of the computer and he does a little demo at one point in this where he's like i'm going to take a picture of myself and then email it to myself which is a silly exercise but it it does demonstrate all the things you would imagine would be such a pain to do with voice control take a picture of yourself with your computer and then mail it to yourself well now you've got a file and you're dragging things around and you got to open your mail app and you got to add the attachment and then you know, he writes uh, a line of text into the, into the message. He does that task of take a picture of myself and email it to myself in an email with one sentence in it. I think just as fast as any person using both of their hands could do it. Maybe not faster, but I think just as fast. Uh, it's a very impressive demo. So check both of these out. If you want to see someone program Pearl by voice, check out the first one. And if you want to see someone do, look, look, ma, no hands, try the second one. <laughs> What is this pedal that he's using? Because I'm only now watching this for the first time and I'm not listening to it. So what is the pedal for? It's, it's a three bu- it's a three button pedal, basically. It's got a big fat middle part and then two parts on the side that you can kind of feel. And, you know, he's just got the buttons programmed to do various things. He's got the middle button, the middle part programmed to be mouse click, the right one programmed to be right click, and the left one programmed to be turn on and off the mouse tracking thing. Huh. Wow. And it's tracking using his head, I guess, just from the looks of this? It's tracking using the little reflective thing on the end of his headset mic. He's got to have the headset mic for, you know, for good voice control. And all he does is stick a little reflective sticker to the end of the headset mic. Et voila. Huh. That is wild. Look how, look how well he uses the mouse. Like, he's targeting the mouse better than most, like, average people I see trying to use the mouse like they're driving a, a tiny arrow-shaped car along the screen. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, this is really wild. I... I cannot believe how well and how efficient he is at doing this stuff uh, and the, the reason you want to watch the emily shea video is because uh, one one facet of it to spoil it is that uh there is a, a different set of words for letters you know what is the uh, the one called uh is it like nato radio something or other one where it's like x-ray foxtrot all that business right mm-hmm. yeah the phonetic alphabet that uh, as she points out in the video 
a lot of those words are multisyllabic, and so it's kind of a mouthful. If you have to, you know, they're multisyllabic for a reason. But if when you're talking directly into a headset microphone for your computer, it can get a little bit cumbersome. So she's got a second set of words for letters in the alphabet. For those who don't know, this is like if you had to say the letters of the alphabet over a slightly unreliable connection. Um, like if you're trying to, for example, if you're old and remember the, the the telephone system before the age of digital phones and cell phones, they're very bad at conveying speech. So if you're trying to spell your name over the phone and you say B and they're like, did you say P or E or G? Like they all kind of sound the same over, you know, a 22 kilohertz connection with some noise. And so it's like B as in boy, right? You, you do that thing. Well, there's a canonical set of those that are developed for NATO or the military where X is X-ray and F is Foxtrot. Anyway, that's what we're talking about. And so she has a different set of them that are shorter. Uh, she also uses VI. So to to exit VI, you know, exit VI while saving, she has to say WQ. But instead of WQ, the, the word for W is whale and the word for Q is quench. So she says whale quench. like if you just listen to it if you just listen to a transcription of her using uh, her computer it sounds like ridiculous gibberish but it's amazing to watch so recommend both videos so john if you ever wondered what it sounds like to marco and i when you talk about destiny from the way you (laughs) describe this video it sounds exactly like that whale quench could totally be an exotic weapon in destiny 3 bungie call me i rest my case the area of RSI and accessibility and and similar things where like there are un- kind of unusual methods to interact with a computer is always fascinating because to people who are not accustomed to doing these things, it seems impossible or it seems like magic or it seems like superhuman when people can operate their computer or their devices with these input methods that like we don't use most of the time or that we don't even know exist. But the reality is like every way that we interact with a computer was new to us at some point you know the keyboard and mouse were new to all of us at one point at first when we got when we were first learning how to use computers and use keyboards and mice we were inefficient with them and i'm sure seeing someone who was an expert typist you know blast away the hundred words words per minute on their typewriter or on their keyboard that seemed like magic to us if we if we didn't know anything about it if we hadn't used it before but like that and like everything else it's possible to learn these things and it's amazing like what the difference between like when you are totally unfamiliar with a task and someone who is a pro at it and like whose brains have wired those pathways to be really good at something there's a huge difference and our brains are capable of so many things that we don't realize they're capable of with practice and and with time investment the reality is you can probably be super fast at lots of these different methods that we don't think of. It just takes time. Just like, you know, on, on a smaller scale, my, my using a trackpad on the left uh, and teaching my left hand as a right-handed person, teaching my left hand how to use a trackpad kind of in parallel with also using the mouse on my right hand, that felt really weird for the first, you know, as I said, week or so maybe. And now it doesn't anymore. And now it's just something I do. And my left hand is totally fine. I occasionally mention this and I hear from people saying, how can you do that? I, I, I don't know how it's possible. And so, yeah, well, try it. It, isn't, it feels weird at first. And you build it up and you get faster and you get better. And it doesn't, take, it, it, isn't, it isn't that hard. And something like this where, you know, to you know, most of us, like, you know, typical computer users using keyboards and mice and trackpads, it seems magical that somebody can use voice control software or other type, other input devices. Um, similar, like if you ever if you've ever seen a visually impaired person use voiceover, who's really good at it, uh, it's, it's a similar thing. Like it really does seem superhuman to us because we we can't perceive using this tool that way. 
But that's only because we are not accustomed to it. We are not familiar with it. We aren't, we are, we aren't already experts with it. We're not using it every day. But that isn't to say that we can't learn. Yeah, the interesting thing about a lot of these input methods demonstrated in this video is some of them are not necessarily any less efficient than the sort of default ones that we use. Most of the time, the reason these input methods demonstrated here aren't in widespread use is either because they have some attribute of them that's annoying. So, for example, controlling the cursor with a little reflective thing that means you have to have something strapped to your head. And that is way more of a burden just like it's annoying to have a thing strapped to your head, like just in terms, terms of mass adoption, right? Convincing people to put on a headset to use a computer versus you sit down and put your hand on a thing, right? There's a reason the mouse, you know, is the superior solution in that scenario. But practically speaking, if you can get over that very tiny hurdle of you put a thing on your head, I'm not entirely convinced that that system is less efficient than using a mouse with your hand or that people would be worse at it because we're kind of used to like pointing our heads at things that we're interested in. And the second thing is a lot of these input uh, solutions require computing power that didn't exist at the time where we were sort of laying the foundation for the current, you know, de facto set of input methods, right? And we're kind of stuck with things that won. Like the reason we have the keyboard looking the way it does is because of typewriters, right? It's, you know, so a lot of these decisions take a long time to change. And so in the beginning of computing, the idea that you could put a tiny little piece of reflective tape to the end of a headset mic or the idea of a headset mic at all um, for, you know, home computer users and that your computer could visually track it no matter where your head was is just science fiction. But today, pff, no problem, right? And so it's going to take a while for uh, the realization that technology can do so much more than it used to to catch up with the evolution of our input methods. And arguably, the iPhone is an example of that touch input has been around but it took a while for the technology to get to the point where touch input can finally be good um same thing could be true of you know looking at things or pointing your head at things um and the feet are obviously very often wasted because pedals are cool but you know that's another situation where the hurdle is now i have to get a thing and sit under my desk and it's on the floor and it's more expensive there's all sorts of hurdles besides efficiency but i'm saying if you get over all of those it's like yeah but of course using your head and a foot pedal is less efficient than a mouse is it? I'm not entirely sure. It's weirder. People aren't used to it. There are barriers to entry that don't exist. It takes more sophisticated computing and software. It's not built into the OS. It's all sorts of things stacked against it. But once you get, once you sort of reach cruising speed, it might be just as good or even better in some scenarios. Same deal with voice recognition. Huge technical hurdle. But once you get over it, it's, you know, it is better. It is better than typing for a lot of scenarios. And I say this as somebody, I didn't mention this in the last time we talked about RSI, but the time before that, I think I did. When I was writing, you know, 40,000 word Mac OS X reviews for Ars Technica, for a large portion of them, I dictated them, right? I mean, granted, it's prose, it's easier. I'm not programming, right? Um, but yeah, I dictated them. That saved me from typing. Uh, and it's weird to do and it takes a while to get used to. And unfortunately, the software used in uh, at least one of these videos is Dragon Dictate for Mac. They don't even make it for Mac anymore, which is kind of crappy. Um, but yeah, I bought a piece of software and I talked to my computer and it was weird at the beginning, but eventually got used to it. And it's kind of relaxing to be able to just sort of sit back in your chair and ruminate and fire off a sentence and then change your mind and, and, and you know, and all without touching anything, your hands aren't doing anything. So, um, that was an answer to a question. A lot of people asked, did you have you used voice recognition software? Yes, I have. Haven't used it to program Perl, but I've definitely used it to write prose. Was it this week or last week? I want to say it was last week that uh, we had an interesting podcast come out. Uh, our friend Federico Vitici interviewed Craig Federighi of Apple, uh, mostly about iPad and the new cursor stuff in iPad. 
And the interview is, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, something like that. And I really enjoyed it. But apparently, John, you need to do your victory lap now about destiny. So let's just get it over with. It's not a victory lap. I'm just pointing out something interesting <laughs> from the interview. Yes, it's a good interview. You should check it out. Like, this is exactly who you'd want to hear talk about that. Vitici, the hardcore iPad user, and uh, Craig Federighi, who's basically in charge of software, or at least in charge of iPad OS at Apple, talking about the... Uh, the evolution of those two things. So definitely check it out. I was uh, a couple of things jumped out at me in the interview. That I thought were cool. One, and we'll put uh, time stamped uh, links in the show notes for these was a bit where Craig talks about uh, the logic they added for the thing where when you move the cursor on iPad OS, it sort of like morphs into the button, right? Like it, it changes from the little circle to be just highlighting the button. If you kind of get near the button and he talks about how they did some sort of essentially client side prediction to say if you flicked your finger, you know, uh, across the trackpad on your iPad Pro, uh, if you flicked your finger kind of in the direction where a button was and it looks to them like if if allowed to continue at this trajectory, at uh, this velocity, it would land more or less where the button is, they would do that for you and snap your cursor to the button that it looked like you were kind of flicking towards. So you're basically making a gesture and instead of them requiring you to steer, carefully steer the little cursor there, they would snap the, the cursor to the button if you have that little uh, cursor changing shape mode on. Uh, and, and he describes it uh, in a little bit more detail here, but basically what he's describing is almost word for word uh, a match for portions of the implementation of uh, aim assist in destiny so destiny is a first person shooter you may have heard of it on this program uh it's available for <laughs> personal computers and consoles and on consoles people use controllers which just have little thumbsticks and it's actually pretty hard to precisely control where an, a little aiming point on the screen is with just your thumb on a thumbstick there's not much range of motion and it's not absolute it's relative right so like it's not like when you put the cursor to the far left, it hits the left edge of the screen, and the far it hits the right, you're kind of like driving the cursor. So there's all sorts of limitations that make controlling the cursor with a thumbstick worse for precision than, say, using a mouse or touching the screen directly, which is what the kids these days do, or whatever. Um, so to make a first-person shooter playable, games usually have to have some kind of aim assist that has to interpret what you're doing with your thumb to you know control the cursor and what's on the screen. And so if it looks like, for example, you're flicking your finger up towards where somebody's head is and they calculated that trajectory that, you know, if it continued along that course, your cursor would come more or less near the head. They will snap your aiming little aiming cursor to the head so that you can pull the fire button and get a headshot. Whereas in reality, if they let the cursor go where it was going to go, maybe it wouldn't have been anywhere near their head. Maybe you would have just fired over their shoulder or something like that. Uh, and there's all sorts of kinds of aim assist in Destiny, not just what I described um, but all that stuff needs to be there to make the game to make the game playable and fun. And the interesting thing about it in, in terms of gaming, and I'm probably also true of, uh, you know, hardcore iPad users like Vitici, is that if you play Destiny with a controller, you play the aim assist. Like at, at once you get to sort of a medium level of experience with the game, you realize the aim assist is there. You understand it's there and you play it. You know that if I kind of just gesture as quick as i can in this general direction there's a certain amount of magnetism that, that player's head has for my aiming cursor and rather than taking the time to carefully get in that direction at which point i'll be shot myself i quickly flick towards there and time it so that the aim assist where my cursor slows down ever so slightly when it passes over their head that i can pull the trigger at the same time by the way i'm terrible at this i'm the world's worst drag sniper but i still play the aim assist even just for primary weapons um so this was this was exciting to me because 
it was hearing the application, not because it's Destiny, but hearing the application of general gaming technology, because every first-person shooter that has control of support does something like this. Uh, the application of gaming technology to personal computers uh, to non-gaming applications. And I think that's a great idea. I think we should see more of that. Uh, all the same tech that make games fun to play and make them feel responsive and make it feel like the game is doing what you meant in your head and not what you did with your actual body, all of that it just makes using your iPhone or your iPad or even your Mac also feel good. So more of that, please. I would just like you to know that because I feel so lost by the terminology in Destiny, it was only halfway through this your monologue when I realized you were saying aim assist. And for Sorry. some reason I kept, no, 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 no. You pronounced it correctly, but I kept hearing in my brain amethyst, which I assumed was some <laughs> sort of like weird destiny thing. This is on me. You were pronouncing it just fine. It's just, I'm so used to not understanding. It's the Long Island accent. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so used to not understanding anything destiny related that I just assumed this was another case. And then about a minute or two ago, oh, aim assist. <laughs> I got the, the more derogatory term was called auto aim. Back in the day, the PC users would say, oh, you have auto aim. Automatic aims for you by the way pc users sorry to disappoint you but uh destiny npc also has a little bit of auto aim don't tell anybody um <laughs> but yeah that i mean the, if you want to see videos on this topic just search for like on youtube just search for like uh how to make platforming feel good or all sorts of stuff like every game does this to some degree uh plat- there's lots of platforming videos because they there's just well-known uh things the platformers do like for example coyote time which is a coin a term that was coined I don't know, maybe a decade ago or so, and that everyone in these videos uses. Uh, that's from, I have to give so much context. I feel like Merlin. I have to give so much context to explain this. Coyote time <laughs> refers to Wiley Coyote. Who's Wiley Coyote? Oh, oh God. <laughs> Wiley Coyote uh, used to chase the Roadrunner. He was a cartoon. Uh, and one of the things that would happen in the videos is he would chase the Roadrunner. Wait, runner. did he die? Why is this past tense? Is he dead? Uh, I mean, I don't think they're making any new Wiley Coyote cartoons. Maybe I'm wrong, but they make new Mickey Mouse cartoons now. I haven't checked on Disney Plus, or I don't think they own. That's a Warner Brother thing, isn't it? Anyway, um, uh, Wiley Coyote would run, and he was always running around where there are lots of big cliffs for comedic value, and he would run and find himself, find that he had run off the edge of a cliff, but he wouldn't fall to his death until he realized that he'd fallen off the edge of the cliff. So at a certain point, he's he's in midair, over the edge of the cliff so we can all appreciate his comedic situation then he looks down and then he falls uh, pretty much every platform game that feels good a game where you're like a side scroller where you're jumping around with a little character allows you to essentially run off the edge of a cliff and still hit jump even though you're no longer on the cliff because if they didn't you would feel cheated by the game you're like hey i hit jump i didn't fall and the game knows no actually your little character was off the edge of the cliff before you hit jump so you should by all rights fall to your death but instead we will build in some amount of coyote time, which allows you to jump. Um, in fact, speaking of a modern game, there was a good video, I think, on the Celeste video game, a game that Tiff really enjoyed and talked about on uh, with Mike on uh, their gaming podcast. Um, Celeste does that and more. You can watch, find that video. If I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. If not, just search for Celeste game mechanics or something. All that stuff, like I said, all that stuff that makes games feel good and fun also makes computers feel good and fun. So I like seeing it here. And I always like seeing some of this talent applied to things that aren't just shooting people in the head. Yeah, although shooting people in the head uh, is not good in real life. But virtually, it's basically just like playing a game of tag, especially since you respawn instantly. So I endorse it <laughs> when it is uh, in the context of space magic and not reality. 
Um, and the second thing that Craig talked about uh, was one of our pet peeves, closing apps. So he was talking about how people who grew up with technology that was less advanced uh, get used to the idea that they have to deal with memory. Like he didn't bring this out specifically, but back on the classic Mac, YouTube probably don't remember this, but back in classic Mac OS, you could get info on a file in the finder. One of the fields in the get info window was a place where you could type in how much RAM the application should have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Cause, cause classic Mac OS did not have dynamic memory allocation uh, in the beginning at all. And then eventually it was still somewhat limited, right? It didn't, didn't have virtual memory. Like it wasn't, it didn't have a modern memory system. Um, and so an application would come with a default allocation, but if you wanted to do something, you know, if you want to open a really big document or you want to do something demanding or whatever, you could increase that amount of memory and that type of manual management of like, Oh, I have to keep track of how much memory the thing needs. And if it, if it's set, if it's limited set too low, I have to like quit the app and make it bigger and launch it again. Uh, you know, all that sort of ridiculous stuff of, of managing memory. Um, he brings it up in the more modern context of, uh, you know, on the Mac, I have to worry about whether an application is running or not. Uh, do we need to launch the application first or whatever? That was the whole push at various points in uh, the history of Mac OS to make the distinction between running and non-running applications, uh, you know, less visible to the user down to the point where they stuck. There's still a preference where you can remove that little dot on the dock that's supposed to be underneath running applications. You could just make it so there's no dots. And who, what do you care if it's running or not? If it's not running and you launch it, it'll just pick up right where you left because good Mac developers implement autosave and resume and state restoration, just like iOS developers. iOS developers had to do it because their app could be killed at any time and was killed at any time uh, when there was no multitasking and now is killed less frequently, but still killed. So every iOS app has had to do this uh, from day one, but Mac apps haven't. And it's been difficult to bring up the speed of it. But all of this is about how that mindset of how making the user worry about implementation details related to memory and running applications was, you know, something of the past. Uh, and he said, and Craig says, people who were brought up in that environment to this day, we see them uh, constantly force quitting applications on their iPhones, right? Which is true. And he didn't go so far as to tell those people they were bad or wrong, but they are, right? It's because he's very political, right? <laughs> but he he did say that people who are brought up in that older world bring those habits forward and think they need to manually manipulate, which I think is also true. But I would say that even kids who are brought up and have no idea what classic Mac OS is, they brought up on modern things, the first device they ever used was an iPhone or an iPad, they're doing it too. And it's, and it's not because they're used to the idea that they have to manually mem- uh, manage memory. So I really hope that you know, this is just a throw off line in one podcast, but I really hope that Apple understands the root problem related to people obsessively force quitting apps is not that everyone who's doing it is an old fuddy duddy who grew up using classic macOS. That's not what's causing this. There are people like that for sure, right? But that's not the root cause. And so I hope they have a, a deeper understanding of exactly what's going on and exactly why this phenomenon of reflexively force quitting every single application on your iOS device has swept the world like coronavirus. Anyway, bad comparison. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was if you if you didn't bring up this part of uh, this angle on that interview, I was going to bring it up because I love that interview. Like the the Federico and Federighi <laughs> interview uh, over on App Stories was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Um, but that was the one thing that stood out. Like when he kind of disregarded or um, excused this behavior of people force quitting apps as oh well, you know it's just people who were used to the old way of doing things on PCs. Like no. 
that's not it. Like there's people do it for many more reasons than that. Some of which are actually good reasons, much to my chagrin as a developer, because people force quit my app all the time and then complain about it not like background updating and stuff, like which like which they basically caused by force quitting it. Regardless, like it, it's a real thing that people do for very good reasons. Some of which are you know urban legends, some of which are placebo, but some of which are actually real real reasons. And if Apple doesn't understand them yet, they really should. The the reasons aren't good, but the reasons exist and aren't what what Craig said, right? So they they have their reasons for doing it. They're just mistaken about uh, you know the connection between you know thing that I want, therefore action will get what I want. And you know as you point out, Marco, a lot of times like they may want something, but their action causes the other harm. Like oh, why doesn't Overcast ever download my stuff in the background? Because you keep force quitting it. That's why. Why are you force quitting it? <laughs> well, I just always I just always force quit everything. This brings me back to that that idea that I had, you know, many shows ago, that some new version of iOS uh, should, you know, provide like a single button to 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 quote unquote force quit everything, just make all the little pictures disappear from the multitasking switcher, but not have it actually force quit everything, because <laughs> like, that those rules can change at any time, right? and they do. Like, what what does force quitting do? How many people who aren't developers know all the consequences of swiping up that little thing? Like, very few, right? And they wouldn't be doing it reflexively anyway, but like. You know, I don't want to get too deep into it again, as we talked about many times in the past, but people want to clean that thing up. Uh, and every once in a while, there's a super duper legit reason to force quit a single misbehaving app or a few misbehaving apps. But it's just so much easier mentally to say, you know what? Look, I'm just going to clean them all up. It makes me feel good to clean them all up. Every once in a while, it fixes Facebook from killing my phone battery. Uh, so it's just a thing I'm going to do from now on is I'm going to force quit every app all the time. And in the episode, it's, it's my idle animation. I'm online, uh, force quit, force quit, force quit. I'm going to put my phone in my pocket, force quit, force quit, force quit, force quit. Please, everybody, don't do this for a variety of reasons. Force quit apps when they need to, not reflexively all the time because it's fun. It was a good interview, and it's worth your time. Uh, John and Marco, can you please uh, ensure that you have given me lifetime free access to your applications? I, I want to make sure that I have all of your stuff for free. <laughs> I haven't gotten that one. That's an interesting one. I wasn't sure which of one of you this was that put this in the show notes, but the show notes reads, unsolicited emails that developers receive, new line, quote, give me your app for free, quote. <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, just, I want to have a preface here. This is not like serious complaint, at least not for me, not not a serious kind of complaint uh, or anything like that. It's not like saying, oh, it's so hard to be a developer because people email us. Not that at all. It's just that, you know, as someone who, as a newbie to the the Apple app stores, I just recently put an app into, uh, two apps into the Mac app store, I noticed that I started to get a bunch of emails that I did not get in the past, right? Just because I have, you know, a couple of apps in the app store. One of those varieties of emails that, I, that I'm listing here is essentially an email that where someone asks for a free copy of your application. Now, there are legit versions of that. Hey, I want I want to review your application for my publication. Can you give me a free copy or whatever? You can argue about the ethics of them getting a free copy and reviewing it and stuff like that, but that's what promo codes are for, you know, partially. Apple gives you a system where you can generate a coupon code that you can give to somebody and they get a free copy of your app. Great. Like, there are legit reasons for that, you know. And, hey, people can ask. Like, it, you know, doesn't hurt to ask, right? Uh, if you want a free copy of an app, maybe you just ask for it. Maybe you'll get one. Maybe you have a story. Oh, I'm a student and I really want to use your app to make this thing, but I can't afford it because it's expensive, you know, yada, yada, whatever. Everyone's got a reason. The, the the reason I bring this up, though, is that just having two apps, I noticed a certain similarity, almost as if it's like a form letter or an automation 
to a particular form of asking for the free app where there's no real effort to give a reason like I'm, I'm in financial straits or whatever, or I really need this app to do more, which makes sense for my apps, which are, you know, simple utility apps that don't cost a lot of money and honestly don't provide so much functionality. That you'd be like, I need this app for my work. No, you don't. Like it's an app switcher <laughs> and a window layering, like, uh, you know, mo- behavior modification. There is no work that you do that requires those applications, right? But, you know, after the, you know, 50th or 60th one of these emails that all look the same and say, please may I have your application for free. I started to think, what is this? Like, what is the benefit of, you know, mechanically, you know, through, you know, through some automation, simply sending every single developer on the app store a free request for the application? I suppose, you know, even with a very small hit rate, if you send out 300,000 emails and you get 0.01% back, you know, you got some free apps. Great. But then of what value are those free apps? Like, did someone did someone write a script and do this and then they get like three or four free apps each day and they're excited by them but they never actually run them because they're going to be random apps that someone replies and says, okay here's a free copy of my app and you're like oh well i don't need this app is it just kind of like a collecting thing where you never actually use the apps you just you just want to have the free copies and you can compare like <laughs> who has the most free apps like you know look how many free apps i have you know like you compete to see who has the most uh, if you can break the purchase page in the app store by having hundreds or thousands you know or hundreds of thousands uh, of apps anyway i just thought this was interesting and it made me think about the kinds of emails that you expose yourself to by participating in an ecosystem and in this case it's the app store or whatever and i have my two little dinky apps and this is the one i could think of but i just thought you two probably have similar stories especially marco about the kinds of emails you start getting once you're in the app store especially if you have like a significant application with kind of a high profile but i guess i'll start by asking do you two get the give me a free copy of your app email and does it look to you like some kind of automation no i almost i don't i can't remember a single time i've gotten that so maybe my apps aren't as good or aren't as popular or aren't as visible but no i, I not as sure. expensive as my your apps are free though right that maybe that's why well, free to download and then uh they're both five bucks yeah, but maybe it's a different I, a different form letter to say can i please have your in-app purchase for free I, I again i it surely has happened at some point but off the top of my head i can't remember it having happened yeah so i used to get these all the time for instapaper because when i ran it instapaper had a paid upfront app and it, i you know i didn't use an app purchase at the time and or at least not Anyway, for a while. <laughs> anyway, so like, so it was paid up front. So I got these emails all the time. Uh, so one of the reasons people would get it is, you know, hey, I want to, you know, I want to review it, or I'm just a poor college student. Please give me, you know, people begging for it. And there's not much value, honestly, in giving most of these people free copies of your app. Uh, it's one thing, you know, if if you are serving some kind of you know, humanitarian or charitable purpose. But if you're looking at it purely from a business point of view, like what's the value to me of a few people having a free copy? Like it's usually not even worth your time to respond. What about exposure, Marco? Yeah. So that's, that's (laughs) one of the most common variants that I, that I got was along the lines of, hi, I'm so-and-so I have a popular YouTube channel in country X that is not your country. If you give me a promo code for your app plus like three other promo codes to give away on my channel, I'll I'll talk about you and you can have exposure. That that kind of thing. So they so that's you know you were asking John why somebody what what people do with their free codes if they get more than one they usually will use one for themselves and they will give one away as some kind of contest on their YouTube channel or their you know blog or whatever these days usually YouTube channel 
and uh and the funny thing is like if you actually look at these people's youtube channels they have what 30 subscribers maybe like it's not you're you're never going to get any kind of meaningful value out of that i would also say just as anecdotal you know counter argument to those kinds of things i have gotten lots of press reviews of my apps uh so far throughout my career and they never asked for a promo code <laughs> like the, the ones that actually mattered the ones that actually got significant attention that actually possibly might have moved the needle of sales of my apps at all were never anything that requested a promo code from me um so for whatever it's worth you know that's but but i've i got i got those emails all the time for instapaper for overcast i haven't uh and i think you know you nailed it you know it's it's because these are free apps up front for a long time you couldn't even have promo codes for in-app purchases i'm not sure you can now and if you can now, I'm not sure whether you can do it for subscription purchases or not. And since Overcast currently only has a subscription purchase, I don't know if, if there's any real way for me to do that. But either way, nobody ever asks. Um, but yeah, certainly the uh, you know exposure on my YouTube channel, give me five codes to give away for like 30 subscribers, That's that was a very common thing to get. It shows an interesting, uh, uh, some amount of savvy that they must know that there's no such thing that, that for uh, as a promo code for a subscription based in app purchase or whatever. Otherwise, they would just ask anyway, and you know whether or not you can actually give it to them. So there's feels like there's knowledge on the other end. Um, yeah, the exposure, or whatever. Like my apps, no one's buying them anymore anyway, so it doesn't matter. But like, I, I I give away free apps all the time. Like I don't care if I if I'm if I happen to have the App Store Connect window open and I want to generate a promo, I can generate a promo. I'll just give them. Like I don't I'm not begrudging these people these apps. I just at a certain point I became amazed at the sameness, at the sameness, and then like at, I'm in the case of my weird little apps. I'm amazed that anyone would go through the effort to write an email for a free copy for this weird app. I feel like saying, do you know what this app does? You're probably not going to like it. Like, especially if you're an automated form thing, like it's just going to be like, here you go. But like of all the free things to ask for, like you really, you know, especially if they write more than one sentence and have some kind of explanation, it's like ask for a free copy of Photoshop or something <laughs> like switch glass is not going to change your world too much. Yeah. Well, and people did. I mean, and I think this, this kind of thing made more sense when software cost hundreds of dollars. Yeah. But these days when when you know most of the things that are receiving these emails cost like one to five dollars, you know, it's it's a lot less yeah. of an well, I'm at I'm at the top of that range. Five dollars is the hundred dollars of today's app store. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> My app is incredibly expensive at four ninety nine. But you know, I understand some people can't some some people can't afford that exchange rates to that people don't have money, kids or whatever that fine, here's a free copy. Like I'm glad you like it. Uh, tell all your friends, right? But it's just weird that that's that is a a steady trickle of people just you know, people and or scripts asking for free copies apps. And then, the other thing is that then I never hear from them again, right? No one ever replies and say, "Gee, thanks for the free app." Like you will never hear from them again. You send you send the promo code, they redeem it, and that's that's it. The struggle is real. So what other what other things have you gotten? Uh, what other kinds strains of emails that you get just by being on the app store? Well, first of all. You will hear from Dunn and Bradstreet. <laughs> oh God, are they a scam? I, I feel like every three to six months, I send a a DM to um, to Marco and underscore in Slack saying, "Hey, I just got this thing from Dunn and Bradstreet. This is total garbage, right?" And usually, it's like a race between the two of them to see which one of them will say, "Yes, total garbage. Throw it away." <laughs> yeah. It so Dunn and Bradstreet, uh, they're they're some kind of like business directory company or something that's been around forever and apple uses them to during your your account setup when, when you set up a, a business app store account 
Apple uses Dun & Bradstreet to verify your info. It basically has like almost like a credit or verification agency. Like they're using them in that role. And so you have to like submit your info and Apple makes it easy. It used to be way harder. Apple now makes it pretty easy to go through this process. But basically you are sub- submitting all of your business info, you know, your EIN, your name and address and everything to this private company Dun & Bradstreet for Apple to verify that, that you know, through them that you seem to be a legit business. And then after that, Dun & Bradstreet will, for the rest of time, spam you with the most hilariously misleading, <laughs> scammy, like both phone calls and postal mail stuff. And I think maybe also email. Uh, so it's typically, it typically will say something on the lines of, you need to complete your business credit report. And, you com- and finish your business credit report today by filling out this form or paying us this money or whatever. And all it is is Dun & Bradstreet like, basically selling you like fake verification for fake spots and fake yellow pages like that, that kind of crap like and you know every business gets weird scammy solicitation attempts from services like usually in the mail just by having registered a business somewhere in some database somewhere but dun and bradstreet really takes it to another level by how scammy their stuff looks and it makes it really just dirty feeling that apple is so involved with them or at least was i don't know if they still are but that apple apple basically forces all developers with business accounts to subject themselves to this other company and give them all this information uh but i don't even i wonder if they still do it yeah i I had to do it oh great so they still do it as of the beginning of this year and i was just registering as an individual i didn't have an llc at that point and i still had to do it yeah and they did and they did call me yeah it's it there it's like for a company that values privacy so much it's kind of crappy that apple forces everyone to submit themselves to this really terrible company their checking wasn't even that thorough. You know what you reminded me of when you mentioned snail mail? Do you guys still get the snail mail of, uh, this isn't being in the app store, but if you have any domain names registered, there's a, re- a reasonable chance that you're going to get a actual piece of paper mail to your house that says, your domain is going to expire, renew today. And it's basically another registrar trying to essentially get you to transfer your domain name from your registrar to them. What? No. I don't think I've ever gotten one of these. Yeah, well, because like, I do a pretty good job of not having my address on any of my who is ever anywhere. Um, so most of the time I don't get those for domains. I do get them occasionally for like business registration stuff and I will frequently get, um, stuff that's like New York tax scams of like, Hmm. it'll, it'll look like I owe money to the state. Uh, and it's really, you have to look really carefully and find like the one line of text on this piece of paper somewhere that says like, this is a service but by a third party, like, but it's real scammy. Like it's, but that's just any business in New York state and probably any state. Yeah, the domain name stuff, like uh, in the days before Hover, uh, domain privacy was either not common or very expensive for both. And so I do have domains or did have domains where I didn't have domain privacy. And now I think it's just, you know, they're forever going to be sending me snail mail with some kind of domain name. Coming. I think I still think every year I go check this and I just say, like, are there any domains that I still haven't transferred to Hover? Which frequent sponsor of the show, you know, disclaimer, disclaimer. But like I, I legit put my own. I don't I don't get any kind of you know, free domains. I'm legit paying for my own domains to be on Hover just because it's convenient to have them all in one place and Hover is a nice service, yada, yada. This is not an ad. Anyway, some domains like I I bought a long time ago that on like five-year, like long expiration dates or something, and every year I go and say, are all my domains on Hover? And it's like, oh, there's still that one over there. And and it has like multiple years left on it. And I'm like, do I want to go through the transfer thing? I'm like, eh, no, I'll just wait a little longer. So I keep deferring it. So it could be some, or like, I think actually Hover doesn't do some subdomains as well. Some really super obscure ones that 
Harvard either didn't do or doesn't do. Anyway, all this is to say is that I'm hoping someday when all my domains are on Hover that has who is privacy by default, I think, uh, this will be solved. Uh, not that I look at my snail mail anyway, but I do recall seeing one of those in the past several years and just still continue to boggle my mind that this is a thing that people do. Another very significant scam that app developers get once you go to a certain size, there's this company, oh God, I, I cannot think of what it's called. They email you cold, and it sounds like what they want to do is get your app featured on their TV show that airs on some cable channel. Oh, ever- yes, yes. Oh, man, I know what you're thinking of. Oh, what is that what, called? I can't find it in my email. What I can't remember even what cable channel. It was like Bravo or something. I can't find it. Anyway. No, it wasn't Bravo. I know what you're thinking of, though. Uh, yeah, you got it. Probably every developer gets this. So what? So it's it's like we we produce a video segment on technology on cable TV, and it gets you know millions of people, whatever, whatever. And we'd love to feature your app at, at, as a, in a segment on our show. It's it's very salesy. It's like you know, contact us if you want to you know talk more and everything. So one time I actually did. Like I was curious. I'm like, well, you know, that sounds like a lot of people. What you know, what do they want from me to get featured on their show? You know, if they just want to talk about my app, it's no skin off my back. So I scheduled a phone call with them. And what you what you eventually learn on the phone call is that they are going to you have to pay them thousands of dollars, and they will produce a video segment and. It doesn't actually really air to any number of people like whatever cable channel it is might show it once at like two in the morning or something. (laughs) And they have this YouTube channel that they also will publish it to. And many of their advertised numbers of like you'll get this many subscribers are actually like YouTube views. And their YouTube channel looks horrendously sketchy and it looks terrible and it doesn't seem like anybody watches it or anybody real watches it. But it takes you quite a lot of engagement with them before you can even get to the point where you can realize this, where you can realize like, okay, A, they don't seem to have the audience they claim to have and B, they want me to pay them a lot of money for this. So really what they are is like a video production. You pay them to make kind of an infomercial about your app and nobody will ever see it. And it's, I actually went and watched some of the things they make and they're hilariously like low effort, formulaic, low value. (laughs) It's it's just amazing. And they wanted, I forget what they said, but I think they wanted like at least like $5,000. It was a lot of money. Anybody on the app store for a non-trivial amount of time, you're very likely to get that. Oh God, I got to look up what this is called. Jelly has found it. Jelly has found it. Uh, so this was addressed to Jelly, whose actual name is Daniel. Hi, Daniel. I'm reaching out to you because one of our senior producers here at Newswatch. That's it. Newswatch. Came across, <laughs> came across gift wrapped and thought it would be great to, for a feature on our nationwide show. In case you haven't had a chance to watch an episode, Newswatch's 30 minute morning. I can't believe I'm reading this, but it's so bad. 30 minute morning news show brings our audience up to date on the latest innovations for both consumers and businesses from apps and tech products to B2B services. I'm surprised you got through B2B and didn't just immediately delete this, Marco. Uh, and even interviews with celebrities. The program is broadcast nationwide on the AMC network in over 200 markets and reaches over 95 million households across the U.S. Yeah, that's so that's what I got. I scheduled a call them. This is back in early 2019. Oh, here. Their standard plan is $4,500. Oh. Um, they go all the way up to the uh, exposure package, $9,500. <laughs> all the metrics are still the same. I wonder what's different. It's standard interview or exposure for $4,500, $7,000, but all the metrics say they're the same. I wonder, yeah, what does what does exposure get me for ninety five hundred dollars? Yeah, that's yeah. So there's the thing is the app store is 
uh, an active market where people are making lots of money and there's lots of traffic and lots of everything. So there's going to be a million vultures out there. There's going to be scammers. There's going to be just opportunistic vultures who aren't quite running scams, but they're at least doing things kind of not in a great way. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of stuff because it's an active market. It is possible to make money here and through legit and non-legit ways. And so people will try and, and many of them will succeed. There are so many scams on the app store and around the app store. This is just scratching the surface. I'd say the general advice for anyone listening to this apps in the app store is like, if you have an app that you know is like, you know, it's an app you made, it's cool, you like it, but it's not like super popular. Like, you know, like my apps, they're little toy apps that I like and think are cool, but they're not super popular. If you get people approaching you with business deals, they're probably scams. If you are a big app developer and, and you have a popular sophisticated well-regarded well-reviewed app you're gonna get legit people talking to you of like hey let's do this thing right but like be suspicious if your app has like 10 downloads ever uh, and you're getting people who want to do business deals with your great app like just it's it, it, sometimes it feels good to think that oh hey someone noticed my app but chances are like you know compare compare your compare your sales numbers to the supposed attention you think you're getting marco needs to be a little more careful because he does have an actual popular app that people know about that people want to do legit business deals with him all the time which he also rejects but whatever like there's legitimate <laughs> people who are doing that but if you just put your first app in the app store and next week someone wants to do a, a great important business deal with you probably a scam something's up recently i i don't know what's what the market force is that's happening right now but in the last month I've heard from three different companies who expressed serious interest in buying my app, not because they wanted a, a podcast app necessarily, but because they wanted to, to just buy my app and just stick their ads in the bottom of it, and they can make enough money through those ads to to pay good prices for apps. Like, is that market somehow hot right now? Hotter than usual? I don't know. They can, if they can buy your your app for a little enough money and it's an automated process, you make it up in volume. I guess you you buy a bunch of apps, you put your ads in the bottom. You they you know they fit, people it takes about a week for people to notice. You get your impressions during that week and you're done. And you just abandon the app or delete it from the store and just rinse and repeat, right? But this was like actual humans reaching out specifically for actual like this app with substantial offers. Like, it, it, uh, you, you got to compare. Like, the more users an app has, the more it's worth their time to actually engage humans and try to actually, you know what I mean? Like, it's I, I don't know how the math works out, but maybe they do. You know, we'll see. If if you keep getting offers like this five years from now, assuming we're all still here, um, then it's obviously a viable business for somebody. <laughs> I, I advise you don't sell, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I, I don't really want to. <laughs> Usually, I like everyone has a price, right? Yeah, I would I would sell if somebody offered enough money, mm -hmm. uh, but that number is very high. My number is lower. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> actually, no, my number actually, well, yeah, all right. It is lower, but still not as low as you think, because if someone, you know, bought my little utility apps and ruined them, I would have to write them again because I run them all day. <laughs> so I do actually need them to continue working. <laughs> Yeah, I I just at this like I I learned my my past story with like having an app, having apps and then selling them like it was it was fraught. There were problems. Like one of the reasons I have no interest in selling is because things are going well and and you know, I don't really have anything else I want to be working on. Uh but also like I don't want my podcast app to suck. And if I sell my app to somebody who is going to ruin it in some way, then I won't have a good podcast app to use anymore because I don't like anyone else's. That's the reason I made mine. So I would probably just make another one. 
<laughs> like, I don't know. It, it would, but I, I, I'm not sure how well that would go over with, with the deal. So the Brent Simmons approach. Yeah, right. I think, I think you have to wait like 10 years in between those two events, though. Yeah, and I probably wouldn't be able to do that. Well, that's how you know you're a cool kid is if Marco puts you on the test flight for Sunny, the replacement for Overcast. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, John, is this going to be a happy story about importing old footage, or is this going to be a sad story? Because I don't know if I can handle a sad story right now. Uh, it's an in-betweeny one. Oh, so, goodness. Yeah, no, it's not. Not You'll see. Anyway. All uh, right. Tell me about importing mini-DV videos. So when I first had my kids, the state-of-the-art technology, my, or at least my, my first kid, the state-of-the-art technology for taking videos of your kids was still... Uh, mini dv camcorders this is a tiny little magnetic tape and this adorable little mini digital video cassette and you put into this device and it would turn and the tape would go past the recording heads and it had a lens and you know it's a an old style camera but it, but it was digital video right so it was doing some kind of mpeg compression or something uh and recording onto this this tape and you know, it, it didn't take long for iPhones and, and, in my case, iPod touches and other things to come out and video to be taken in more convenient packages, right? But before that happened, I recorded many, many tapes of my kids, both my kids, in fact, uh, although the first more than the second. You know how that goes, parents. Um, <laughs> and but, but many DV tapes, especially in the time I was making them, I had like my blue and white G3, I think, when I first started making these. That's actually a lot of data. Like if you just pull the digital the dv files off of the mini dv tapes it was gigs and gigs and that used to be a lot back in the days before you know multi-terabyte hard drives so i'd have them on the tape and the tapes are digital right but i can't actually take them off of the tape and put them on like my computer they wouldn't fit they were like 100 times larger than the capacity of the hard drives <laughs> in my computer so they're never going to go on my computer um but i did you know i would take snippets of the footage and i would edit them in iMovie and i'd make a little movie and share it with their relatives like i'd do all that but even just doing that one iMovie project for like a 60 second clip or something was you know a significant amount of data and then i would just throw away the files and just keep the finished video right so i had all those i had all of my little projects of little things but i had the raw material hours and hours literally hours of mini dv footage on all these tapes and i wanted to have them like available in some way in my computer so Way back in the day, it was in the Mac OS X era, I got an app called iDive uh, that unfortunately no longer exists. Uh, and what iDive would do is you'd hook up your camcorder and it would essentially uh, do two things. One, it could take like a take like a tiny thumb, blurry little thumbnail every N seconds. So you'd have like a scrubbable thumbnail, you know, highly compressed thumbnail timeline of your video. And two, you could also make massively compressed postage stamp size, you know, H.264 or whatever was the the algorithm of the day. I think this might predate H.264. Tiny, heavily compressed miniature versions of your stuff. Uh, and you could fit all of that on my computer of the time. So what I did was I used iDive to transfer, you know, these thumbnailed and heavily compressed, you know, tiny versions of the video to my computer. Just so if I ever said, oh, where's that video of, you know, my daughter doing this cute thing? I didn't have to remember which tape it was on. I could go and physically look, you know, scrub through the video. And find, oh, it's that one. And then pull out the tape and get the, the quote unquote high quality footage off of the mini DV and do stuff with it in iMovie, right? Um, and if anyone has uh, doesn't remember or never knew what importing DV footage was like, at least with my camcorder, the only option I had was essentially press play on the camcorder <laughs> and allow the computer to record in real time. Yep. So if you have 90 minutes of mini DV, 
That's going to take 90 minutes to import. Repeat for your shoebox full of tapes. It took a long time. Yeah, I mean, because the, the, the mini DV format, I think, was very closely tied to Firewire. Like, I, I think it was basically sending a, like, raw Firewire stream. It was, it was like, 400 megabits per second, like, exactly like the... It, it, was, it was something like that, where it was, like, it was very closely related to the Firewire spec, and Firewire was basically made for DV. Yeah, the standard. Yeah, they were tied closely together. The, a lot of the selling points of FireWire was that it could handle the, the 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 latency and the the strict timing required to have that constant stream of video coming down, so it didn't have any hiccups or anything. And you know, anyway, the FireWire USB battles are long over. But back in the day, it was important. And my camcorder did have a FireWire port on FireWire four hundred port uh, because that was the only FireWire at the time I got it. Um, so I did that. I spent the hours importing everything into iDive. And I brought that iDive library with me along from, you know, my Power Macs into my Mac Pro. And then eventually I brought it on to my current Mac Pro. Uh, and this is long after iDive stopped being developed. This is long after iDive stopped working, I think, even. I think it broke in one of the old <laughs> versions of macOS. But if it hadn't broken then, it certainly would have broken now because it was a 32-bit app. And, of course, you know. Anyway, and the company that makes it, like, just has a sad little web page. It's like, we don't make iDev anymore. Sorry. Uh, so, but I had all this footage in iDive, and I was like, "Well, can I, can I rescue that, or do I want to rescue that?" So, you know, I did. I, this is a kind of a casey solution. You know, I fire up a VM with an old version of Mac OS X <laughs> on it. Uh, you know, and yeah, that works. And you can run iDive. Uh, I don't recommend it, uh, but it, it, I got it working well enough to like be able to sort of look at what's in iDive, and with modern eyes, it's like, yeah, this isn't really worth saving the total size was like 50 gigs or something but it's 50 gigs of postage stamp size garbage thing so i'm like okay well uh that was fun having iDive there was useful as a way to look things up quickly but now it is of no value to me but i do actually want the contents of those videos so i had to eventually face the reality that i would i have to re-import everything and that meant you know 90 minutes per tape (laughs) <laughs> I did that over the course of many, many weeks. And I imported and I used modern compression. These like H.265 and the, the, the full quality ones. They're still big, by the way. If you'd import them, like, I don't know if it's uncompressed, but it seems minimally compressed or uncompressed. They're they're big, but even by modern standards. But if you H.265 compress them, you can get really good quality and they end up being kind of small. So I re-imported every single one of these tapes and then I deleted my iDrive library. Notice, Casey, the order that I did that in, by the way. Yes, yes. We import yes. the new ones first, then anyway, because for all I know, the <laughs> tapes are all entirely bad. And that's that's the one wrinkle in this is that when I was re-importing them, a couple of them, especially at the beginning of the tapes, would have all sorts of digital noise and stuff all over them, like these giant blocks of, you know, white and blue and pink and stuff like that. I'm like, hmm, well, you know, these tapes they are very old. They may have deteriorated, stretched out, you know, got demagnetized or whatever. But very frequently... I would, you know, if I saw that, I would stop, rewind the tape. Everyone loves rewinding. um, And then start the import over again. And either the noise would go away or I'd get different noise. And so each tape that I had noise on, I took two or three attempts to see, like, and I would only let it run if I got past the first minute or so with minimal noise. But it was interesting. This is my first actual experience with trying to rescue digitally stored media from my distant past uh, and having some of it deteriorate. The the good thing about whatever algorithm or whatever whatever format they're using is that just because there's some noise and garbage and, you know, it's not, I say noise, I have this analog noise. Just because some of the bits 
are obviously flipped and screwed up on this thing. It didn't stop it from importing. It didn't stop it from mostly working. There's just some garbage on the screen and, and it eventually clears up. I'm glad the entire tapes weren't like this. Like it was mostly just at the beginning. Uh, but a few of them, you know, I did have some data loss. Like there are sections of the picture of the first few minutes of a couple of these dozens of tapes that have a bunch of garbage in them and I'm never going to get those back. So what can you do? Uh, but I'm mostly glad uh, that it worked and that I now have a hopefully more robust digital copy of this. Uh, fingers crossed for bit rot not to bite me. And then, of course, it has entered my uh, patented backup vortex and is now copy, <laughs> copied in a thousand places, including, by the way, putting them into my photo library. Because why the hell not? That, that puts it in five more places. So uh, that's it. It was mostly a good story. I didn't actually lose any. None of the tapes were unreadable. But, uh, you know, maybe maybe three or four minutes of video total are kind of scrambled a little bit out of the hundreds and hundreds of minutes that I recorded. God, we, you know, not just technology wise, but it, it became clear to me when watching it that I, me, I at least personally used to record video in a very different way back then. Like every shot was like, I, they were long, right? I mean, I would film 90 minute tapes. No one is taking 90 minute videos of their kids on their iPhone. unless there's some like very, enthusiastic relative who wants to record little timmy's entire birthday party people are taking clips and honestly if you try to do 4k 60 on your iphone of timmy's birthday party you're gonna fill it right mm-hmm. that, like that stuff takes up a lot of room people take short much shorter movies, including me i take much shorter movies oh the dog is doing something cute fine you take a 60 second movie maybe at most but looking at this footage i'm like wow i just kept rolling i just like you know, minute after minute, hour after hour, just like, and it's great because you get to see my kids doing, you know, things in an extended way and not just trying to catch the one cute thing, but like, you know, here's, here's an entire feeding and the cleanup afterwards, right? Um, so it was fun. Uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, ha- watching the videos out of the corner of my eye as they, as they totally monopolized my computer for hours and hours on end. Oh, and uh, the, the other fun part of this was, of course, finding the series of dongles required to go from firewire 400 <laughs> into a 2019 uh, mac pro it wasn't that bad that's the other reason i did this I said, look if i keep waiting eventually no series of dongles will get me where i want to go and those tapes are not getting any younger so i better just do it so i did i'm glad it mostly worked out yeah my kids were cute uh the mini dv video quality is terrible and the audio on the camcorder was not good yep but hey, my uh, my uh, childhood movies are on Super 8, which uh, has its charms. Uh, Casey would love it for the ceremony, of course. But mm-hmm. uh, A, there's no audio whatsoever. Uh, B, the frame rate is what? 12 frames per second? What is Super 8? It's really low frame rate. Uh, and C, it looks worse than mini TV, even with the digital noise. Oh, man. I remember, um, I might have told this story on the show, but Dad, uh, I, it was maybe when I was like newborn or maybe it was my immediate younger brother. Um, but this thing lingered for long enough for me to have a memory of it to this day. Uh, dad had some sort of camcorder where the camera did not have any sort of apparatus with which to save the data it was capturing. So what he ended up having to do was carrying an entire VCR on a shoulder strap. So this is like I mean, for those of you who are not old like us, that was very early in camcorder mm-hmm. days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So imagine like I know some of the kids these days don't even know what a Blu-ray player is, but just for the sake of discussion, imagine a like a PlayStation that you that you put on a shoulder put on a shoulder strap and wear it, and it's hooked up via a cable 
to a camera the size of like a professional film camera that is taking video so uh, just indescribably bad with burn-in that lasts for like 20 minutes anytime you get anywhere near a light. <laughs> and that was his setup. And the surely the batteries lasted all of like four and a half seconds. But that's what he had to do was, you know, actually hit the record button on the VCR that was hooked up to the camcorder. And the VCR was like specifically designed to do this. But nevertheless, it's still like a household VCR that you're carrying on your shoulder that probably weighed like 10 or 15 pounds and God knows how much power it drank. It was preposterous. And that was early videos of maybe not me, but certainly my, my younger brothers. It was just the worst. The super eights had such bad, uh, light sensitivity that uh, this is probably also true of your, or your VHS setup that my parents had this like incredibly blaring presumably also super hot white light that would blind everybody like you had to it was like a light on a movie set like you know you always hear people talk about being on movie sets and how there's so many lights and it's so hot and they're so bright right that's what you had to do take any kind of video where you could see people so everyone even though it's just indoors and normal indoor lighting like during the day everyone looks like you found them in a cave right because it looks <laughs> it's total blackness outside the radius of this white hot burning sun that you have to like have mounted on top of your camera yeah, my first camcorder experience was only a small generation after Casey's. Um, it w- it wasn't even ours. Like it's like our family friend had one, and we could borrow it. Like whenever we had like a school play or something. This is interesting. So Riber in the chat is saying that the term camcorder actually refers to a camera with a built-in recorder. So that's what the one that I first used was. They had they had figured out how to miniaturize VCRs enough that it was still a full-size VHS cassette. But you could put this full-size VHS tape into the camcorder, which was approximately the size of a VCR, you know, vertically. Yeah, yeah, And so it weighed a ton. It came in this giant black carrying case. Like, it it was the size size of, like, a a desktop computer, (laughs) like the the case. And inside, you'd pull out this heavy, giant camcorder with a battery that was probably about the size of, like, the sole of a shoe. Like, this huge, long rectangle, <laughs> like, big, thick thing. And I remember, like, having it on your shoulder. And I, w- I must have been maybe, I don't know, 11, 12 when we, would, when we were using this thing. And so, like, having that on my shoulder, I'm like, I'm like the scrawny kid. It You could only hold it up for maybe 15 minutes before your shoulder would hurt like hell because it was just so heavy. But it was it was a full VCR. Like, you could actually... You know, you, you could connect it to your TV and you could actually watch movies on it. Like you could you could put in any VHS tape and hit play and you could watch movies on, either on the little tiny black and white eyepiece uh, screen, <laughs> which was actually, I think, a little CRT in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or you could, you know, connect to your TV and have that be your VCR if you really wanted to. But it was, man, people don't know how good they have it these days. <laughs> Things are- yeah, this is all analog, by the way. No, there's no digital anywhere. This is all just analog, analog, quote unquote, standard def because there was nothing else. Uh, videos. Yeah, JVC had the first breakthrough product, the 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 one that was red, red and black kind of. That was the the kind of one where it broke through to the point where people would look at it and not be horrified that this is an actual product. The JVC one was like, ah, kind of looks like a camera until you got it. The JV- the original JVC was also huge, but at least it wasn't like a shoulder bag like Casey's dad thing. That was the early adopter model. Yeah. So I put in the in the chat there's an RCA camcorder and and this is my this this matches my mental model of what these things used to look like. And if you're used to holding up like I, I joke about how we're old and and kids these days, but really and truly, 
you know, people that are 10, 15 years younger than us have probably never seen this. And this is the highest possible tech option that you had. And really the only option that you had in the like prosumer or, cons- or consumer category was something that was basically a VCR that was mounted, like Marco said, on your shoulder that had a lens in front of it. I found the JVC one. I think it's the uh, JVC GRC one, the the old red and black model. Yeah, it's, yep, it's, yep, it's, yep. it's so small compared to that RCA one, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, this is one. Didn't MKBHD do one of his like discovering old tech videos on this camera? It was on either this or something very similar to this. Yeah, it's it's a very famous thing. I think my aunt had this one too. Um, I think this there was also a similar looking VCR at the time, and I remember it because it was. Uh, the first remote control I can recall seeing, and it had a wire. <laughs> <laughs> it had a long wire, but it had a wire. It's remote, though. You could be on the couch, and you could hit play. Mm, man, that is that is some stuff. Yeah, in some in some respects, it makes you think that like the like Super 8 and 16-millimeter uh, and like the film ones had a certain uh, classiness <laughs> that maybe this RCA one did not. <laughs> like, it looks impressive and everything, but in the end, like... Like the the idea of film, like actual photosensitive film flying past an aperture at you know sixteen or twelve frames per second or whatever, and that you would get that film developed and that you would that you would show it using a projector in your house that you had that you could project the film onto your screen that you also would have to have a big reflective movie screen in your house. My you know my parents had all of these things. The idea that uh, you could do it all electronically with this the idea called a VCR in your TV, like it was amazing. But in some ways, it's like huh. But our TV is 21 inches. The projector screen was huge. And I don't get to hear the chicka, 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 chicka anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was in elementary school, uh, you, would, you would know you were in for a good day because the reel-to-reel projector would come into your room and that's how you would watch a movie. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. You know, because there, there, wasn't, there wasn't any sort of like portable TV situation in like, because as I got in, older in elementary school or perhaps middle school, they would eventually stick these, you know, 50-pound CRT TVs <laughs> on uh, and VCRs <laughs> onto like a cart, right? How did we not all die from those TV carts? It's the most top-heavy thing in the world. Like take this huge CRT and put it as high up as possible on this <laughs> stand that weighs nothing, this rickety metal stand with wheels on the bottom. I mean, it's amazing we're not all crushed to death underneath those TVs right now. <laughs> yeah, and pull, so put it in a room full of, like, hyper kids, like, <laughs> wiggling and running around. Yeah. And then, you, of course, you have to run a cord to it, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kids <laughs> can trip over. I mean, right. to be fair, the, it was, uh, uh, you know, kind of a trapezoid in profile. The base was slightly bigger than the top, but it was not well balanced. And as far, I never even heard any stories of those falling on people. I guess we just all thought they were stable. But yeah, the uh, the film projectors were certainly more fun because it was more of a possibility of fire and melting. Oh, great. Because <laughs> of the, you know, I, I had to explain this to my kids. What were we watching? We were watching some movie. Uh, no, it wasn't a movie. It was, uh, it was Little America, an Apple TV Plus show, which I can actually recommend that I hadn't, uh, didn't, didn't look at until someone tweeted at us and I checked it out. And I actually there's, you know, the episodes are hit and miss, but the good thing is that they're all standalone episodes. It's not a series. So I would say just watch the first three episodes of Little America. You'll know if you like it. It's only like 10 total. Anyway, at one point, they're showing a thing that's supposed to have taken place in the 60s or something, and a bunch of people are outdoors watching a movie, like an American movie in a foreign country, and they get to some dramatic scene, and then the film gets stuck, uh, and it melts, right? And I, <laughs> I, it occurred to me that my kids probably didn't know what they were seeing. Like, I guess people oh have seen this in movies. You know, they still do it as a, as a kind of a trope. But like, the, instead of showing the picture, all of a sudden a white blob appears in the center of the picture, and it starts to expand, and there's color fringing around it. And I explained to my kids what's happening there is that the the 
film that you can shine light through to make the picture that's flying past the the light and the projector, the film got stuck. And the only way you could get light bright enough to project was to have a very big and very hot light. And if any piece of film stays in front of that bright hot light for more than a couple of seconds, it melts. And that's what you're seeing on the screen. What you're seeing is the white hot light of the projector melting through the frame of film that got stuck in front of the light. And that's why it looks like a big melty thing. (laughs) I enjoy explaining stuff like that to my kids. Uh, Soon I'll be explaining to people what the little icon of the phone handset means on their iPhones. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true. What is that shape? Is that a C? What is that? What is that supposed to be? Let's do some Ask ATP. And let's start with Jamie Bender, who writes, if Apple does release an ARM-based Mac, would, the, would we be uh, would we be willing to buy the first-gen machines that run it, or would we wait until they sort out any major issues? We know Marco's answer. No, Marco's answer is absolutely yes. Oh, yeah. I'd buy it on day one. Uh, for me, I don't know. I honestly don't. I mean, generally speaking, this is where I say, no, it's not for me. I'd wait. And then I end up buying it on the first day. So probably that's what I would do. But uh, it's, it, it's, it's a much more uh, invasive, let's say, change than a lot of the things that I've lived through as an Apple user. Maybe not John, but for me. And so I don't know what I would do. I'm, I'm really not sure. I would like to think I would wait until at least the second model, if not the second generation. But I do like me a new shiny, so I don't know what I would end up doing. John? An Apple user. Such a weirdo. Um, I, initially, I'm thinking, like, well, of course I'm not going to buy it on day one because I got this big honking expensive computer that I'm going to be using for a long time, right? Even if they do come out with a new one, I can't afford to <laughs> get a new umpteen thousand dollars, you know. So, of course not. But what I think about is especially in these days of uh, remote learning and all sorts of other stuff, how my kids are fighting over the one laptop we have because none of them want to use the desktop computer because desktops are for old people, I guess. Um, I could potentially be in the market for another laptop to deal with having two teens in school where they need laptops so they could each have sort of one of their own. We've got the previous generation. Is the Yeah, I'm, so, I'm losing track of that. Anyway, yeah, the, the butterfly keyboard retina MacBook Air is what we've got, 2017 MacBook Air, and it's fine for their purposes and the keyboard hasn't broken yet. But if they came out with the, the very first ARM computer and it happened to be a laptop in, my, in that sort of the MacBook Air class price range, I might get it just to give the kids another laptop and because, of course, I'd be curious about technically, you know, what it's like or whatever. So it's not out of the question. It really depends on what computer is first. If the first one is a 16-inch MacBook Pro, no, I'm not getting it because I'm probably never going to get that computer. But if it's a kid-appropriate laptop, I might get it on day one. Um, this is part of this question about whether they're, you know, sorting out major issues. Yeah, like there's going to be issues, right? But that hasn't stopped me before. I got, you know, the the very first uh, Power Mac G5. Uh, there was a lot of inherent risk in that, and mine did have a weird chirping power supply. Uh, but there is also the excitement of having the new thing, you know, ASAP. So if I bought it on day one, I wouldn't be buying it expecting it to be perfect. I'd be buying it knowing there could be weird problems. But if you're if you go into that with your eyes open and, and that's part of the experience you expect, you can, it can still be fun. Yeah, I mean, I think the most likely source of weird problems is going to be the OS and the application ecosystem. Like, it's going to be the software side of things. Yeah, uh, yeah. The hardware is probably going to be rock solid because it's probably not going to be that different from iOS hardware, uh, which their their record on that is very strong. Uh, so really, like, the, the bigger challenge is going to be, like, how ready will both macOS, presumably it is macOS, um, and the apps that will run on it, how 
ready are those? Like how how mature is that going to be on day one? And the answer is probably going to be like, I'm sure most stuff will work most of the time, but there's going to be problems. And there's going to be certain apps that you just can't run for a while while they get updated. And some of them, it's, you know, like any other transition, some of them will never get updated and they, they won't make the transition. Uh, and so there's going to be issues like that. But that's probably going to be true for the first few years of them being in existence, probably through multiple revisions of the actual hardware. Unai Haran writes, uh, hey, Casey, which file system did you use to format your big external drive? Maybe it's a question for John, but an accumulated experience in the last months, I think you were the one. So this is with reference to the Best Buy 12 terabyte drive that I got in desperation and made a duplicate of my Synology onto. Uh, I formatted it APFS because it seemed like the most appropriate thing to do and the path of least resistance when I'm hooking it up to a Mac mini. Now, John can tell me what I should have done, but to quickly answer the question, it is APFS. John, what should I have done? A lot of people have asked about this. Uh, APFS does not perform well on spinning disks. It was not designed for spinning disks. Uh, you know, it's it's just not, that's not its strong suit. Uh, it is kind of an anti-pattern to put APFS on a spinning disk. But the reason a lot of people end up doing it, including me, my internal clone of my boot drive is a spinning disk that is formatted with APFS, is the path of least resistance when cloning a drive with most cloning software is to just actually make a clone. So if you're, the disk you're cloning is APFS, so is the clone. It's a very straight, I use SuperDuper to do that. I'm not even sure if SuperDuper can do an APFS clone to HFS Plus, but I, I like it's just more straightforward to me to say, if you're going to make a clone of a disk, make it identical to that disk. I don't run anything off that I mentioned, I think, on a previous episode that I accidentally booted into that and couldn't understand why I was making so much noise. Uh, I don't recommend people use APFS on spinning disks unless they're using it as a backup that's just there just in case or a clone or something similar. Uh, HFS Plus and HFS before it were made in an era when the layout of the structures of the file system on the disk were tailored to the idea that you had a disk head zooming back and forth on a spinning platter and you had to wait for the platter to spin around to the part that you wanted and you had to move this guy from place to one place to another and you had to wait for it to stop shaking so it stabilized in a little thing. And so HFS Plus does a lot of work to jam all of its important structures into contiguous blocks in a single location so that that little disk head doesn't need to fly all over the disk to do a simple operation. APFS does not do that because APFS was born in the world of SSDs where random access is a thing and there is, there is no more diskette and there's no more spinning platters. So um, I think Casey did basically the same thing I would do, but it's, you know, if he was actually going to ever try to use that disk as opposed to just having it as a backup, it would be a bad scene. Pascal Lindelof writes, what are the chances of Apple ever making iPad OS a multi-user OS? I have a new model iPad Air, which is used by the family around the house, but when it's not in use by them, I like to use it as a second sidecar screen. However, that requires it to switch from the family iCloud account to my own iCloud account. This is a very tedious process. I want to have a separate iCloud account for the family on the iPad to prevent my photo library from getting swamped with pictures taken by the kids on the iPad or having my YouTube recommendations being overgrown by Sean the Sheep. Um... Uh, you know, iPads are multi-user in the education uh, environment, but that requires a whole bunch of specific scenarios and circumstances and software. What is it, Apple Classroom or something like that? Uh, I I really don't see it coming to the iPad, if at all, then I don't see it anytime soon. I mean, you could say, John, on an infinite timescale, maybe it would happen, but personally, I just don't see it in the next few years. But John, what do you think? This is actually, I was thinking about this and the reason I put this question in here, this is actually a miniature version of 
uh, my old hobby horses. Like uh, back in the day, uh, you know, Apple's big problem, technologically speaking, their biggest amount of tech debt to use modern lingo that the, <laughs> uh, you know, office drones will understand. The biggest chunk of tech debt was they had an operating system that did not support preemptive multitasking or protected memory. And that became an increasingly big deal as its competitors got those features and as it continued to not get them because so much of its software stack was built on the idea of a single continuous memory space that every app could access at the same time and cooperative multitasking, right? And those were not the answers for the future. It made sense when they made the decisions, but eventually it became this huge tech debt burden. And the company basically almost went out of business while it tried to figure out how the hell are we going to get a modern version of the Mac operating system while not losing literally all of our customers. Like it came very, very close to going out of business. And they had like, what, 90 days worth of money uh, before they bought, uh, left when they bought uh, Steve Jobs in and Next and everything. So close call. That's obviously a much bigger boulder than this. Um, and, you know, I used to complain about their file system and they addressed that. Uh, what, what were my other uh, technological peeves? I've had a bunch of these of varying size. Swift. Oh, yeah. New, uh, new programming language. Yep. They've, they more or less addressed that too, right? So good on Apple. I, I think uh, the one time I actually met uh, Craig Federighi at WWC a couple of years back, his, his opening line to me was like, well, you got everything you wanted. You have nothing left to complain about, right? You got, you got your modern operating <laughs> system. You got your new programming language. You got your new file system. Uh, and he, he was partly right. Um, but there's always something else, right? So this little thing here, hey, uh, why is an iPad OS multi-user? iOS from day one, again, for explicable and good reasons, was not made like macOS, where you would log in as a user and all your files would be owned by you, the user. And like like iOS on the original, it wasn't iOS, iPhone OS, the firmware on the original iPhone, they called it firmware, it wasn't even an OS. Um, yeah, it runs OS 10. That's what Steve said, but they never used that name. Anyway, <laughs> if you know how that was working under the covers, it was not working like macOS 10. You did not log in as a user. You didn't have your own user home directory. It was weird. Lots of stuff ran as root. Lots of stuff was sort of, you know, it was like a, not that it was single user because under the covers, it's still Unix and it still got the same Unix security model and there was the sandbox and thing and whatever, but it just, it was just weird and it wasn't laid out or it didn't run like logging into Mac OS 10. And it still doesn't, right? To this day, there's a weirdness about it where it is not like, oh, well, we can add multi-user to iOS anytime because it's exactly like Mac OS X out of the covers. It's Darwin. And you you don't know it, but you're already running all your apps out of your own home directory. Nah, not really. That's not quite how it works. Like the classroom stuff does this weird user space reboot. And, you know, like everything, the solution they've had to that has been kind of a hack. So this is a fairly big piece of tech debt. Assuming that Apple ever wants to have this feature, which I think they should want to have it eventually, it's not easy to add. Like adding, you know, preemptive multitasking and memory protection, like coming up with a whole new programming language, like writing a new file system that will work across all their devices, it's not the type of thing that you can bang out, you know, in a couple months. Ah, we'll get that, well, you know, no problem. We'll just we'll just make that when we need it. If they if there comes a point where they want that, and arguably they've already passed that point because if if they could get it easily, they would have done it for classrooms, a place where it is actually necessary. They had to do it as a hack because doing it the quote-unquote real way where it's an actual real multi-user system like the Mac is so different than the way iOS works now that it would be really, really hard to do. Now, again, this is much smaller than even a new file system and certainly much smaller than how do we get a modern operating system. Those are much bigger tasks. And this probably won't hurt them in the long run. But if I had to pick my next area to watch where Apple's got 
some core technological problem that is thorny and annoying and is never going to be easy to deal with uh, on the iOS platform, this this would be in my in my top five for sure. Because uh, it's always it always struck me as a little bit of a shame that like the iPhone was so so forward thinking, so ahead of its time, so barely possible. Like it's part of the miracle, like like the original Mac, so barely possible that you know people thought it was fake and didn't understand how it was done. You know, the original Mac, I, I would argue, was even more so if you consider what it did with 128 kilobytes of RAM and you know all those other things, right? Um, that it had to be designed with all sorts of expedient hacks just to even make it possible. And thanks to its success, again, the iPhone much more so than the Mac, many of those hacks became enshrined. And Apple has slowly unwound them and slowly addressed its tech debt over the years such that iOS of today is way more sort of sturdy and reasonably constructed and built. But the legacy of the original iPhone is still in there right down to this you know, inability to do multi-user in a straightforward way because you just couldn't afford to do that from day one uh, with the original iPhone. Yeah, to add a little bit to that, I mean, so, you know, not only has iOS grown up not having multi-user support, but iOS has also grown up at a ridiculous pace in a kind of, you know, frantic software update uh, ecosystem where iOS in general does not get a lot of opportunity to pay off its technical debt because it's constantly moving and having stuff added and the market is changing and the hardware is changing and everything is changing so much, there's probably not a lot of good times that the people who work on core iOS services and core UI have a chance to work on things that might make this you know, possible or at least easier to do later. You know, that, that technical debt is so baked in and stretches across so much of the OS I don't think they're ever going to be able to repay it because it's never going to be important enough. It's never going to be like a top priority thing to add multi-user support to iOS for a number of reasons. Um, you know, first of all, I never really used Mac multi-user support until about the last year or so, uh, as we've you know been various like you know beach travels and uh, and now you know with home school work and stuff like that, uh, we we've had more needs over the last year for a Mac to be used by two or three people in our household. And so that's become a very common thing for us. And even on the Mac, where multi-user support's been there since the beginning, and it's, or at least Mac OS 10, you know, it's been there since the beginning, and it's really, you know, baked into the OS, it's still kind of weird, and still a lot of stuff kind of breaks with it. And that's a that's a mature system that's that was designed that way, right? So even when it's baked in, the OS is really most of the time, and the applications on the OS most of the time are assuming that it's going to be used by one user on one on one, on one device. Period. What kind of problems are you having, by the way? Because I I use multi-user all the time, and I it works the way I expect it to. What kind of things are you running into? Uh, usually, it's like you know apps that don't think that they have their registration information or like they like Skype keeps trying to install helpers over and over again and it can't um one of the uh, oh and how different apple ids work with different passwords and keychain storage um how <laughs> somehow on, on on one of the computers tiff set up adam's account using parental control and it's now entered this state. I, I haven't done any research on how to fix this, so I'm, I'm sorry. Everyone's going to try to email and help me, and, and I appreciate that, but I, I probably can fix it myself with 10 minutes of research, but I just haven't done it yet, where it gets to the state where we can't turn off the parental controls now on his account, and they're super obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> obviously, 
no one uses Mac parental controls really uh, <laughs> because try to do anything on an on an account that has parental controls and it's quite a disaster. They're, uh, they're both obnoxious and hard to circumvent, or, and and uh, easy to circumvent rather. So it's the double whammy. Um, for, for the only one that you listed I've seen is the uh, software non Mac app store, like traditional Mac software that wants you to register on each account. And I'm not entirely convinced those are bugs because it just could be their licensing model. Maybe the licensing model is each user and, you, and your computer needs to have a license to it. But other than that, I haven't had any of those issues. Like the worst I could think is that maybe it's not entirely clear to me when I'm on one user's account how what kind of priority tasks get on the other user's account. Like if there are apps that think they're not, think they're not running in the foreground, therefore they're never going to do some check or whatever. But in general, I've been using it, you know, multi-user from day one and i i think it works exactly the way you would expect it to and with no problems because it's you know it is actually baked into the os you do actually have your own home directory you do actually have your own user the the operating system has no problem running multiple copies of the same application owned by different users uh all works out fine well i'm glad it works for you it works okay for us but yeah we do run into weird little issues here and there um but anyway so i think the the bigger challenge here is that most of the market doesn't really want this anymore what it would take from a user perspective, first of all, like, uh, say you wanted to share an iPad. The idea of like, how how would that work with things like apps, with the with the home screen, with notifications, with you know a lot of the security stuff, with store kit. Uh, there there are so many things about how it would have to work that would greatly complexify things. That and, and it doesn't seem like that's necessarily worthwhile. And then finally, the bigger challenge with this is that market wise. I think Apple just wants everyone to buy their own devices, and the market largely has accepted that. If you're going to have multiple people in a household who are going to be who are going to want their own stuff on a device, you probably are going to wind up having them each have their own device. And even though it costs more money, this also is a world where people's primary computing device could be a $400 phone or a $300 iPad. And back when the you know mainstream computer platforms were designed back like in the 80s and 90s computers cost two thousand dollars so it was a much bigger deal that okay you're going to get a two thousand dollar computer for your household you're going to have it in the computer room or in in like the den or whatever and it's going to be in the computer cabinet and your your family will share this it was like a major appliance it was like a washing machine like it was like your family's going to share this major appliance it's a major investment for them at, at this one station in the household it wasn't like your computer, mom's computer, dad's computer. Like it was just like here is the family computer, and so multiple user accounts were more important as things were bigger, more expensive, you know, younger. Now technology is so ubiquitous, and so much of it is so inexpensive that everyone just gets their own devices. Uh, as you know, if you can afford to do that, which is increasingly accessible as devices get cheaper, everyone gets their own devices, and that's fine. And so the the usage demand for multi-user stuff on one device is greatly reduced and the need for it is greatly reduced at the same time that the os is now like the, the ios you know side of things it would be harder than ever to add that to them so that's why i i suspect we're not really going to see that come to ios uh, more than it already has as this weird like educational hack thing that regular people don't have access to 
Uh, at a certain point, it like it, it will become a little bit easier, not just because they're paying down the other tech debt that's lurking in the operating system, but just because the resources will expand, right? iPhone used to be so RAM-starved and such slow CPUs. You know, fast forward 20 years, there's a huge amount of RAM in everybody's phones and iPads, and you can afford to do multi-user switching in an efficient way and all that other stuff. Like, they do have a use case. It's the education use case. Obviously, it's not very important in the grand scheme of things, but it's important enough that they implemented that weird hack, right? And that weird hack is just more tech debt. Right. So even just <laughs> just to address that customer use case, eventually someone's going to say, hey, like oh, all our iPads have 32 gigs of RAM in them now. And we've actually cleaned up a lot of the operating system in iPad OS. We're pretty close to doing a one year long project to get real multi user for, for iPad. And we could just have a better implementation of our classroom thing. Doesn't mean they even need to use it for the other things uh, for, you know, for regular consumers. But the second thing is that there are people with shared devices, especially iPads, you know, iPads cost a thousand dollars now obviously it's a thousand dollars in 2020 money not two thousand dollars in 1980 money but they're not cheap uh and because of the way because of how regimented things are because of how how they are such single user focused devices trying to have someone else use them is disruptive like not just because you you know get your kids youtube recommendations but you can't even unlock the device if it doesn't know who you are if you're not registered on the you know like it doesn't doesn't have an awareness of multiple people like I, granted, I am an alternate appearance of my wife and vice versa, but that's, you know, stretching the limits you know, so we can just get into our other devices. Right. So I, you know, it's not an important use case like Apple is correctly prioritizing. There are much more important things they need to be doing. But it's one of those type of things where eventually, unlike that tech debt coming home to roost and being like a company killer, it'll be more like eventually we're close enough. We're in shooting distance of that anyway. And we do actually want to do this thing for the classroom because that is, that's always going to be a shared device situation. If Apple keeps its prices the way they are, right? A one-to-one iPad thing is very expensive in the grand scheme of things, uh, especially in this country in terms of how much money we spend on education, that having shared iPads will probably always make sense in, in an educational setting. And so, Hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a better version of that? It's a low priority, but I don't think it's a zero priority. Um, and you know, like I said, it's just it's kind of a shame. Like it's, that, you know, if if the iPhone had come out five years later, maybe multi-user would have been baked in from the start, and we would have complained about how slow it was switching users. But I mean, the other, the other way Apple can do with this is, uh, no, they shouldn't do this. But it, every time I see one of these yeah, messages about why someone might multi-user or sharing an iOS device or even sharing, well, sharing a Mac, they have multi-user, right? But iCloud, signing out of iCloud is another reason I want to use iCloud Drive. Signing out of iCloud is like the end of the world. Do you want me so to delete true. every piece of information and so you, you have to painfully and hopefully restore it all the next time? Like it is not, it's a big deal, especially if you have a huge photo library. Like I will never sign out of my iCloud account ever anywhere if I can possibly help it. So, you know, if you just like, oh, I, we have an iOS device, but that is on little Timmy's uh, photo collection. I want to pull that photo uh, and I don't know about iCloud.com, the web interface. So how do we do that? Well, I guess I could just sign out of my iCloud account and sign into Timmy's. Like, no, no. turn back. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> but if you could just switch to Timmy's account for a second to grab that, that would be cool. I mean, again, storage space RAM like this. You know, I'm not saying this needs to be done today or tomorrow, but um, it's it's out on the horizon as a piece of tech debt that Apple could address that would make its devices uh, a little more convenient. And it would be nice for uniformity. Macs can do it. iOS devices should be able to do it too. It'd be neat. Everybody, everyone can use their shared 27-inch iPad. 
it's you know in the computer room <laughs> thanks to our sponsors this week expressvpn and notion and we will talk to you next week now the show is over they didn't even mean to begin because it was accidental. accidental oh it was accidental. accidental john didn't do any research marco and casey wouldn't let him because it was accidental. accidental oh it was accidental. accidental and you can find the show notes at atp.fm and if you're into twitter you can follow them C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment S-I-R-A-C U-S-A Syracuse It's accidental I have excellent, excellent news, gentlemen. The Mark 8 GTI, so this is the brand new, not yet released GTI, will offer a manual six-speed transmission. John, when Honda inevitably abandons you, you can come to the Volkswagen Auto Group side of the world. Drive around in an ugly hatchback? I think your generation (laughs) of... Your generation of the Golf R looks way nicer than this new generation. I'm not a fan of the new look. It's it's okay. The squinty eyes, I don't really, I don't love, but I don't know. I don't like those weird fog lights. What are they doing with like the like the five dice dot? Yeah, fog yeah. Lights? Uh, apparently they're, they're fitting it in the in the in the what is that hexagonal grill? And I don't know why there's five of them. The whole grill looks stupid. I don't mind the grill. I, I am a sucker for big front fascia, as I've said many, many times about the M Sport package on BMWs. But um, yeah, the fog lights are a little odd to me. I also don't like that black like C just outside the grill area. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, there's it's too busy. Yeah, I don't know. It 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 looks okay. I mean, I've seen render well, not renderings. I've seen some like camouflage pictures of Golf R, and it looks okay um i don't know if i'm falling into the same trap as as bmw where the the generation of car that i came to the brand <laughs> that is the last good one and everything that comes after is yeah. garbage you know <laughs> every bmw owner <laughs> yeah because i mean i'll tell you the last good three series was easily the e90 and the f30 was trash and whatever the current one is has got to be garbage too um so I, I am definitely that when it comes to bmw and perhaps i'm doing that again with volkswagen but i am I am overjoyed to know that if, you know, well, if I ever have a reason to drive anywhere ever again, and if I need to get a new car for some reason, uh, at least for now, Volkswagen and the GTI trim has me covered. I don't like either of these wheels. What kind of person is deciding to show a GTI in red? Like Why the, would you? The whole signature of the GTI is the red line across the, the grill. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. can't see that when the whole car is red. I don't know. I, I'm, I mean, I like the GTI pretty good. Uh, the the existing one, uh, obviously, I prefer the R, but you know, it's, it's still a very nice, very fun car, and I'm I'm enthusiastic that this is getting a stick. Now, what will be terrible but hilarious if it is if this gets the stick, but the R is a like DCT only, which would be just my luck. And again, I mean, I'm not looking to replace my car anytime soon. I mean, the hell, at this point, I'm I'm ensuring I'm driving my car every couple of weeks just so it's still functional. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's all that's all I've done with my car is go on essentially joy rides to give the car exercise. Yeah, I yeah. would love to see your joyride. 
<laughs> the same here. It's got to be the slowest, most boring joyride in the world. Oh, there's not a lot of cars on the road. You can, you can, you know, I let the I let the engine warm up a little bit because I'm old and think that's still a thing, and then I go for some high revs. I have lots of fun. <laughs> no, that is, I think that is still a thing. I'm not joking. I really think that is still a thing where you should have your your oil a little bit warmed up before. You act like a turd. I mean, look, uh, the Marco's M5, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't your M5 one of the ones where the red line would increase as the oil got warm? I don't remember that at all. I mean, I never probably approached the red line, so I don't know. But yeah, I, I think what's interesting to me is that you're talking about this as if you're as if, you know, this is very likely that by the time you need to buy your next car, because your current car is what, a year, two, two years old, something like that? Year and a half ish. Yeah. So by the time you need to buy your next car, which is probably not for at least three to five more years, right? Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I hope. Right. <laughs> Unless something goes really wrong with this one. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, you know, you're talking on like probably like you know a five-ish year time span at the minimum. You honestly think that you're still going to have a gas car, or you, that, that you're that you're still going to want to buy a gas car five years from now? You know, it's a very good question, and the the stubborn child within me says, of course. Because, I mean, what monster would buy an electric car where you can't shift for yourself and so on and so forth? But the reality is... There was that one stick shift electric car. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) There was that one off build. Um, But the reality of the situation is I'm already sort of giving... What's the the happy equivalent of side-eye? You know, because side-eye kind of implies anger. But happy side-eye to electric cars. Like my parents, uh, I think we've talked about this on the show. My parents got a Chevy Bolt, and it's not remarkable, but it's surprisingly great given what it is now it's also not as cheap as you would hope it would be you know it's it's it was expensive and it's it's got problems but by and large it's much nicer than i expected and you know if tesla wasn't completely canceled by now and more affordable maybe i would consider a tesla but god knows i'm not giving that man any of my money ever Uh, and so as i think i said to you privately marco and now i'll say publicly i cannot wait for us to reboot neutral while you go on the journey of picking out what replaces your Tesla, because I don't think you should be buying any more Teslas, or at least not the way things are right now. Man, does that guy really make it hard to to be a fan of this brand. And I, the, I love the cars. The cars are so good. And look, they're not perfect. No car is ever perfect. But I love this car so much that if I didn't have anything else to consider, like, this guy and his, you know, often offensive behavior. If my car was stolen tomorrow and I had to replace it, I would literally get the exact same thing. And I, I, I have said that for the last what five years that I've that I've had Model S's. Like, I love this car so much. I actually don't love the Model Three that much. It's, it, other people like it, so that's fine. It has an, it has an offense. I love the Model S. I absolutely love the Model S. It is my car, and it feels so much like my car, and I love so much about it. And the things I like about it, nothing else really offers yet. So maybe that that giant Porsche thing, but I I honestly, it, it has an, a, has some other compromises that I don't love, and it costs more money, and so it, yeah, I'm not super into the Porsche thing. But there's no other car I want to drive than a Model S. I love it that much, and so I just I wish that that guy would stop making an ass of himself so often because I don't want to have to make excuses for why I drive the car that I drive because the car is great. And he just is makes such an ass of himself so often. It's really hard to deal with. 
I think this will solve itself. Uh, assuming Tesla can a survive and b get its act together enough, they will ruin your car because they will eventually make a new Model S or Model S replacement that is significantly different from your car, and you won't like it. And they're problem solved. <laughs> then you're like, okay, well now suddenly options are open. I can keep buying used Model S's uh, of my generation. You know, the good generation when I back when I first started <laughs> buying the Model S, those are the good ones. Right? Yeah, right. Because honestly, your first Model S, granted, this you know. You can cosmetically tell them apart very easily, and they've changed a lot in the interior. But in general, the you know the size, shape, features, layout, compromises of the car are the same. It's got the same number of seats, the same dashboard, you know, the screen, the vertical screen in the center, the like the shape of the car. Like it's essentially the quote unquote first generation Model S, right? Even though it's been heavily revised, I'm assuming eventually they will make a new Model S that. And if you look at Tesla's recent cars, like the Cybertruck and the new Roadster and the Model 3, they have different sets of compromises, which seem to appeal to you less. So this may solve your problem for you. Uh, yeah. That you, you, won't, you won't be so tempted. And, and then you'll have to really gauge what is my desire to have a used uh, my generation Model S based on battery lifetime and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. No, uh, literally earlier today, I was driving today and I was literally thinking, you know, maybe at the end of this lease, I might buy it out. Because I, I just like this car so much and, you know, nothing on the horizon has me particularly excited yet. And, you know, maybe, I mean, I, I have another roughly year and a half left on this lease. So maybe by, by the end of this, maybe we'll have a lot more electric car models than one will tempt me. But honestly, I don't see any on the horizon that, that are tempting yet. And I think... Okay. It'll get you back to BMW, your old favorite. Yeah, I don't know. I, there's so much more. There's so much about Tesla that I like better. Like I like so much about like the the UI of the car, the like the the app, the key. Like so much, so much about it. Like all this little stuff adds up. Yeah, like the CarPlay integration is phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, that's CarPlay is the one big thing that I wish they had that they don't. Um, but. I'd rather interact with my phone on the little mount, the ProClip USA mount sponsor. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather interact with that and then have the giant screen for all the car stuff than interact with uh, Tiff's car's CarPlay because CarPlay, like the way BMW integrates CarPlay is very clumsy. CarPlay is not a a like built-in automatic thing that just works seamlessly. It's like a mode that iDrive's system can show or not show and it's very clunky to get in and out of it also frankly carplay needs a touchscreen so i drive she's just like the knob on in the center console and you like wheel through everything with that with a knob and doesn't have touchscreens carplay while it works that way you can navigate carplay with knobs it sucks it's yeah. way better with a touchscreen yep. no i would agree with that because my my car has like it has like a volume knob and on, on close to the driver and on the passenger side it has like another almost identical identical knob that's just used for like scrolling and manipulation and whatnot and you can use that right side knob for using carplay which i didn't even realize for months but you can do it and i've done it from time to time just to try it and it sucks it definitely yeah. sucks you're right and and even though i stand by sort of what i said in neutral that having a touchscreen in the car is not the greatest because you know you're boinging you're bouncing around the road and you have this you know, your fingers so far away from your shoulders so it boing it boings even more and so on and so forth but but ultimately i think i would rather have a touchscreen than not even with all of its its troubles and and and, and issues with it so yeah i can only imagine that if tiff's car is still just the knob that it would not be terribly fun even despite it being wireless carplay which i'm very jealous of because mine is wired only and i really wish it was wireless but well, you win some you lose some Having everything on a touchscreen, it sounds crazy. 
but I've now that I've driven a car for five years that has a giant, pretty good touchscreen, I can tell you it's fine. It's totally fine. I don't find that it's significantly worse or less safe or harder to operate or more error prone. I find it's totally fine. And anything about it that is kind of iffy is down to the design of of like, you know, how they've laid out certain controls, not necessarily like that it's a touchscreen or that it isn't a touchscreen. Um, and part of this is like, at least on the Model S, this is not, this is less true in the Model 3. On the Model S, you actually do have physical controls on the steering wheel and the two stalks that cover so many common needs that you actually don't use the touchscreen as much as you think you would. On the 3, it's, the 3 has a lot more on the screen and it, it, it has like a whole, I think it has one fewer stalk completely and, and some of the things you can set are a little bit different, but, uh, but yes, on the Model S, it's, a really good balance you can see your speed right in front of you imagine that yeah right <laughs> what a radical idea yeah i don't i don't care for the three but i'm glad they're selling a whole lot of them and it's a pretty good car for a lot of people but it's not for me uh but i just i love the model s so much and the reason i was thinking about buying it out is like i i just want this car and even even if tesla explodes and flames out and goes under which honestly everyone always thinks they're about to do that and i don't follow the finances enough to know but they've been around long enough now that I, I I would meet any of those speculations with quite a lot of skepticism at this point. Um, but man, I just love this car and, and I love it so much that I'd rather have the Tesla I have now with no CarPlay than the best possible CarPlay thing that I can think of that, that exists in the market today. Now, in the future, if that changes, who knows? Like, I, I love that little Honda E concept thing that yeah, yeah. is still not available in, in the US, unfortunately. I love the way that thing looks. That thing looks awesome. I haven't driven one, and everyone says it's not that exciting of a car to drive, but it looks so cool, <laughs> and it's so compact, and it's such a fun little design. The interior looks like it has a really good design, too. That I'm very interested in as just like a, a, a fun option, but you know that's probably not going to come to the U.S. anytime soon. And, and so I think like right now, I can look at what's on the horizon for the next year and a half, and I, I can pretty much know what are my options going to be when this lease is up. I don't think there's any like massive bombshells that are going to drop that are, oh, all of a sudden this new car model comes out of nowhere. No one knew about it. Like, no, I think we're pre- we pretty much know what's going to be there in a year and a half. And uh, and I think I'm going to stick with this in some form, whether it's buying this out or getting a new one that's probably the same. <laughs> yeah, you should get a fresh battery. You don't want to keep using that used battery. I know there's a risk if you get a new one, it might be like, you know, might have some manufacturing problems. The steering wheel might come off in your hand or whatever. But uh, But a fresh battery. I feel like if you're going to like buy out the same model of car, you should really get one of the fresh battery. So it'll last you the longest, right? So you'll, you know, so you can wait the longest for something that you like uh, equally as much or better. And I think if, if and when you do get a more traditional car with a more traditional interior, one of the things that you will appreciate is, oh, this one physical button that was annoying to get to on the touchscreen. It's so nice to have a physical button for this one task, right? Because it still is a thing. I think even your Model S goes a little bit overboard with the touchscreen, just to sort of prove a point, and the Model 3 does it even in a more pig-headed fashion. Knobs and buttons, they're awesome. I'm not even saying don't have it on the touchscreen. By all means, put it there. But certain things, being able to have knobs and buttons, were like striking that balance is the, the current exercise of interior car design. And if you look at all the cars that are out there, forget about electric, just your cars in general, you've got a touchscreen and you've got knobs and you've got buttons and you've got stocks. How do you balance your controls among them? I think putting everything on the screen is the incorrect balance, just like not having a screen at all is the incorrect balance. You just got to find the right balance and get the, you know, the, use each thing, use each uh, input area for its strengths 
and not have some kind of philosophy where like everything's got to be a knob or a button or everything's got to be on the touchscreen. 